From TMP to TTNG For sure the cure and those tired meme jeans Hella Kinsella and the promise ring Sunny day real estate and rights this spring Prince Twinkle Daddy's help keep the dream alive I constantly thank God for Algernon and Remo Christie front drive. Mineral snowing high tide hotelier and more. Rio Limo only consists of the DC emotive hardcore. I go, Carol, Carol. <laughs> There's no Carol in HR. Well, in the same way that they never ended up delivering any mail, Brave Little Advocates never ended up <laughs> proverbially delivering any mail. So there's quite the connection there. <laughs> All right. I feel like that's where we fade into this episode. <laughs> uh, but for real, welcome to episode 52 of the E-Word. This is Kyle recording here in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm joined by Ellie in Austin, Texas. Ellie, how are you doing this morning? Uh, so this week for my newsletter, I did this thing where I ranked every single original Goosebumps book, of which there are 62, and I have not read any of them in like literally over a decade. Like I haven't even really thought about them in the last 10 years. But I was like in I was in Target getting groceries and I saw them in the kids book section. And I was like they still exist? Like they're still making new ones? So I like reached into the recesses of my mind and I was able to like recall the plots of every single one of these books, like without really even looking any of them up, which I mean, this whole venture has to be like indicative of or a manifestation of some sort of severe mental illness. Uh, so I'm just like reeling from that realization about myself. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad that this is finally happening. And we all kind of talked about how we're all just anticipating this. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. I just want to introduce the guest, our most requested guest in the E-Word podcast history. We have Adam from Brave Little Abacus and me and Caprice. Hello. Hey, How's Adam. How's it going? Very happy to be here. Very excited to double back and read the Goosebumps newsletter. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> very into that. Uh, I, I reference Ayn Rand while talking about Goosebumps. Like, Woof. that is, yeah. Well, in reference to, like, one of the Goosebumps books being the worst books I've ever read, like, in my life, worse than Ayn Rand. I'm still very concerned about myself for, for going through that, but let's, let's focus on Brave Little Abacus right now. <laughs> and, and the 62 Brave Little Abacus records. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, so we kind of rushed to do this one after talking about 
finally getting to it because we're coming up on the 10 year anniversary of just got back from the discomfort. Yeah. That was brought to my attention by you. (laughs) 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 I, uh, I lost it a little when, um, when you told me in an email that that was happening, (laughs) I think I would have caught up. So I missed the 10 year of everything before just got back from the discomfort. And I've, thought about it around the time they turned like 11 to 13. And I think that's when I would have caught up with this one as well. And I, and I chalked that up to honestly, like if I had a child, I wouldn't pay as much attention to their fifth, sixth or seventh grade year. I would wait until they were like listening to interesting music in eighth grade. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so that's why, you know, they're my children, but I just haven't paid any attention for (laughs) too long. That makes me real happy because it means that we absolutely scooped like, NPR noisy or pitchfork whatever trying to do a 10-year retrospective on this album we got we got the sluicy yes absolutely (laughs) I do want to put at the top of this episode that I want to give a lot of props to maybe the only other podcast you've done which is I might go to the beach oh yeah. yeah yeah I'm using that interview as like a lot of the groundwork for how we talk about this album um, so cool. shout, so shout out to that podcast and well, we're going to get pretty long in this episode, I think. So Adam, do you have anything you want to plug at the top? Any, uh, pages you want to send people to, you know, anyone listening to this, uh, you probably know I'm in a band now called me and Capri's and, uh, I hope that you like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't know. I'm, uh, you know, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. I think it's mostly just my name. So one thing recently that me and Caprice did was that, uh, the disposable America live stream with the wake with still in bed. That was fantastic. Oh yeah. That one with the wake with still in bed. That one was uh, oh, that E-scene. was, uh, okay. yeah. And then we, yeah, we did a disposable America one as well. Yeah. It was really fun. It was wacky, but really fun. Yeah. You were, uh, what, what was the anime that you were projecting on the screen behind you? Oh, it was definitely uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know nothing about anime. I gotta come clean. I don't either. I just know about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's like one of like the an- one of the anime that I actually like will tolerate. Like that and like Cowboy Bebop. That's pretty Love much it. Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, I know yeah. about that too. <laughs> <laughs> this, I'm, I'm so excited for this episode because. This is like such like a dense and well-conceived record. I feel like because you are so accessible, as you said, um, I feel like lots of people could have hit you up to like solve some mysteries about this record. Um, But we don't know about any of that going in. So I think this is just going to be like a like a really fun episode from like like an analysis standpoint. We are the sports center of emo. So let's, uh, let's dive in. Let's look at the footage. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So I want to start off by kind of being forward and asking, in general, how do you feel about talking about BLA? I think the internet has kind of come up with this perception that there's a lot of mystique around you and the band. And I think a lot of this is because a lot of bands today break up, but they just keep shit posting from their band's account or from their band accounts. And Brave Little Abacus has gone dry and silent. So, yeah, how, how do you feel about talking about your old band? Well, uh, 
at this very time in my life, I feel very, very comfortable talking about the Brave Little Abacus. It took me to a, wh- a while to enjoy it after it broke up, after, after the band broke up, and enjoy uh, entering the space in which I remember it well. Uh, and, you know, I mean that like in terms of listening to the music or, you know, the um, even just like the kind of like the the mental environment or worldview that was like surrounding the band uh, in in the time that it existed. Um, I guess it's like it's kind of like any relationship, like you kind of like you can possibly fade out of out of contact with like a person. But over the course of my 20s, I think I've gotten better at engaging with it and benefit from engaging with it. Um, I, I find that like like this morning uh, in preparation for this, I listened and just got back and it felt good to do. So at this very time, I, I I enjoy talking about it and I feel very comfortable. There was a long time where I, I didn't, but I will say, not to go too long on question number one, um, I will just add, I think that some of that mystique just comes from when the band existed. Like the band broke up and there was nothing really we would do. Like we didn't have a, a Twitter or an Instagram the breakup predates a little bit of that entering my my scope or something. Um, so like some of that radio silence that can be interpreted as like mystery is just like the reality of like stuff gets lost. I've been fascinated with like this uh, Pachinko record. This the I don't know if you know about that Internet thing. No one knows like when it was from or who made it or anything. And I'm just like digging into it. And I'm like, oh, this kind of reminds me of how like it must feel to be a Brave Little Abacus fan. Like, <laughs> you know, there's nothing to find. You can't. There's no answer. Like it just doesn't exist. Yeah. And then someone else throws it on Spotify and <laughs> makes money off of it. Wait. That's what happens. Someone else uploaded it. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Same with this uh, Pachinko record that I've been digging. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that's that's why the Spotify version like doesn't sound very good. <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, whole thing. <laughs> Sorry, I should. Oh, I thought shit. that that would be funny to say. I didn't mean to dive in the. <laughs> in the no, no, like, no. This is interesting because like, uh, Brave Little Abacus is in like a lot of regards like one of the like the last of this era of emo bands that remains uh, relatively inaccessible through like conventional streaming methods like Spotify and Apple music. Mm-hmm. Um, except for just got back, which we now know is like illegitimate. Cause we, I was, I was going to ask whether or not like the mass dancers demo or the first demo or Okame was ever going to be uh, oh. uploaded to streaming simultaneously. I do think that also keeps like a little bit of the, of the mystique that this is like material that you would have to deliberately seek out yourself. You know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Why aren't you going after this person that's uploaded your music to Spotify and making money off of it? Well, uh, at first, it was just sort of funny, and I woke up one day, whatever day it happened, I woke up and felt like king of the prom because I got so many direct messages and texts, and it was, uh, and so that was cool. I'm not gonna lie, that was kind of cool. I don't get like DMs much and stuff, you know. And uh, so at first it was like, oh wow, someone made me popular. Um, and, <laughs> and then throughout <laughs> that like week, it was like weirder and weirder, and the numbers started to grow. Um, did a little bit of digging, like telling Spotify, like, oh, this isn't uh, this, you know, this isn't this artist's like person. Uh, 
or this this person isn't the artist or something, you know, found out pretty quickly that like, I mean, there's no like label representation of Brave Little Abacus. I have no way of like proving to Spotify. I mean, I'm, I think Spotify is kind of a mess. I find it to yeah. be kind of a funny uh, indication of how far down the like tubes that entire system has gone. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not wor- worried about it too much uh, as of right now. It would be nice to fix it at some point and like maybe Spotify would keep the page and the rest of the discography could go up uh, without like the weird edits and stuff. I don't know. I'm interested Mm. in the person who did it. You know, I hope that they're doing something cool with the very, very infinitesimal amount of cash that Spotify is giving them quarterly. (laughs) But yeah, no, it's all good for now. I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people thought like that the Brave Little Abacus being put on Spotify meant there was more things coming as in like a reunion, a vinyl remaster or a remastered version of the album, but it's funny that it all has nothing to do with you. Well, it did inspire us to like, we all got together because of it. And we have over the past while, you know, we're all still like close and, uh, you know, and still in communication, but it did inspire like an immediate hang. That was really fun and hilarious. That was good. Yeah. I mean, now I should bring up the post that you made with everyone on the couch I think it was on Instagram and it said now with live drums or something. And that like broke the emo Twitter. Yeah. Well, yeah. Nick was Nick, Nick Marone was our, you know, our live drummer. And so we got him in the picture and it was, that picture was featuring live drums, you know, good. <laughs> it was fun. It was just a photo with your live drummer. <laughs> yeah. He's the best. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. In doing this Decade Under the Influence series, uh, we've talked at length about how the Northeast region was just kind of quicker to have an up-and-running emo scene by 2010, like bands like Snowing, Algernon, The World is a Beautiful Place. Did BLA interact with that in any way? Or like, what was your, your New Hampshire and Massachusetts DIY scene like at the time? Um, at the time of, uh, of 2010, uh, the, the bands that we associated most with were bands really close, just in our proximity. We, we had, uh, there were bands that we played a lot of shows with at a local level, bands like, uh, Kama was a, a band we played with all the time, Pathos, the, uh, we played a lot of shows with, um, our friend, uh, Matt Aspinwall, this uh, incredible electronic duo, Horny Vampire. We didn't interact with the bands you mentioned all that much. I knew at the time when the very first Algernon songs came out, I heard them on MySpace um, and was like, I couldn't believe how much it sounded like Cap'n Jazz. Uh, (laughs) It blew blew my mind. Um, I can't say that I, I listened to them that much. I just have recollection of like the album cover and being like, this sounds like Tim Kinsella. And for better or worse, just like that was what happened. Uh, the world is never really interacted with them, was you know, super smitten with what they were doing from like a very outside perspective. The only band that like was in our area that people called emo was Old Grey, and we never played any shows with them, and we didn't know them. Uh, I think they're, like, a little younger than us. But, like, I remember them, like, forming, and, like, on their MySpace, it was, like, they were an emo band. But other than that, no. But I totally feel 
looking back, exactly what you're saying about, you know, the Northeast and that that happening that for sure yeah. at the time wasn't super aware, you know. So the scene that you were playing with wasn't was just kind of like bands with the same like general DIY. Yeah, it was very genreless. It was, you know, it was like yeah. I said, it was like really just all due to proximity. And so it became like, you know, it was mostly just um, just friends. I mean, I could like name so many more, but, there, you know, a lot of bands that are, you know, relatively obscure, but we're down, like, we're down the street, uh, you know, at least in terms of when we were playing, you know, local shows, like when we ventured out to, um, you know, playing Boston or New York, obviously, like they were considerably different, different groups. But um, but yeah, the uh, it was just really friends, you know. So because of that, um, did you ever feel like a like a disconnect with the term emo or how people started like considering uh, the Brave Little Abacus to be like a like a seminal part of this emo revival scene, like in retrospect? Definitely. Yeah. I never heard about it till we were broken up. I never it was like most people around us, like dating back to the first material we ever made, we were wearing you know, a wild amalgam of influences directly on our sleeve. Most of our friends got that. Like they knew that we were obsessed with the flaming lips and they might be giants and Mm. bright eyes and like all this, you know, and like big, like orchestrated stuff. I mean, like all the horns we would do, things like that. And then, uh, and I was like playing like Rush, like, you know what I mean? Like I was just like, you know, like I was just trying to write like Dillinger escape plan riffs but not be in a band that sounded like Dillinger Escape Plan. That's so sick. <laughs> um, I, I was obsessed. Yeah, so we were just a little bit on an island, and I always feel really weird saying that because it sounds very like a very manufactured response, but I kind of remember the very first time I was in college, because I did like one year of college after the Brave Abacus broke up, and it was like people that went to my college that were like, the internet thinks that Brave Little Abacus is an emo band. And I'd be like, what? And, th- and th- I'm talking like 2013. Uh, and then it, the, the term just kind of orbited the Brave Little Abacus for a while. And I don't think that I got it. I don't think I got it until years later, like what was really happening with that. And now I feel much more just because of the Internet and meeting so many new people around the, you know, the world in music. I get that the term is like so many different things to so many different people and so wide reaching. Uh, and so I totally get it. Um, but to feel a disconnect, yeah, I, I can't lie. When the term first started being connected with, you know, my old broken up band, I, I couldn't help but be like, wait, what? <laughs> like at first. Right. Um, For sure. Uh, and that definitely kind of leads into something that Kyle and I wanted to talk about. So um, this has been a, a recurring conversation on the podcast about uh, the term post emo. Have you heard that? I was introduced to it very recently. Or uh, is that the same as fourth wave emo? <laughs> I was introduced to the term so. fourth wave emo. Okay. Uh, I feel like those are interchangeable. But yes, I, I think I, yes, I have like a somewhat of a conception of what, what that means. I told the last person that asked me about fourth wave emo, the only waves I know like well are ska. Yeah. Like I know, I can, <laughs> I can explain the different waves of ska. Emo, I don't really think I probably know the first two. I know it starts at Rites of Spring, and once it leaves DC, it probably gets to Chicago. But once I don't know wave three and four. Right. So there's been, I mean, like there's been like so much argument over which actual wave of emo we are in. Like it could be like fifth, sixth, seventh, like whatever. But people are 
kind of talking about this uh, this specific time because post emo has been used like in so many different contexts over the years. But right now they're using it to refer to bands like Glass Beach, example, who I believe take a, a very heavy influence from the Brave Little Abacus. And it's it's in in my opinion, it's kind of like similar to the way that post hardcore was the implication that these were bands who had roots in the hardcore scene and then started bands that took in a vast amount of influences uh, that kind of like pushed outside of the box. Got and yeah. yeah, so that's that's kind of what post-emo is kind of coming to mean. And uh, there's been some speculation on a couple people's parts that the Brave Little Abacus was kind of the first post-emo band because there's, there's something about all the music that the Brave Little Abacus did that it feels like emo, despite the fact that a lot of the time it doesn't actually sound anything like emo. Uh, you were talking about having influences from They Might Be Giants, which I think is like one of the most prominent um, in the Dillinger Escape Plan. Um, there's like some, I feel like in, like in the blah, blah, blahs, especially there's some like mid 2000s screamo influence. Um, <laughs> there's like chip tunes yeah. all over the record. What was, what else was kind of going into like the melange of, of stuff that you were listening to that you were putting into the Brave Little Abacus? Um, by the time of Just Got Back, uh, I was obsessed with They Might Be Giants, uh, Deftones. That was a big one um, mm. on, mass, on Mass Dancers. We, we all, ex- you know, together, we were just completely enamored with on the music industry. Oh, for sure. We were, we yeah. were yeah, we, uh, we were obsessed with uh, the first... <clears throat> The first two Laura Stevenson records at that point, um, they had just come out. I was listening to a ton of cursive. Um, You've named three, lot- out of my, three of my favorite bands, like, of all time. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, and then the only other two uh, going into, or I guess three, going into Just Got Back specifically, three very particular records. There's Whip Smart by Liz Fair, Automatic for the People by R.E.M., um oh and sirens by on the might of princes those three records oh my god because they're literally like referenced on just got back um even though i think there's a refused reference too but you know who's counting um but yeah all those things a ton you know absolute ton uh zach our keyboardist was just coming out of years of studying micro microtonal music um this composer named uh alois abba who's relatively completely unknown but fascinating yeah we it was so many so many things i think that that's yeah that kind of that kind of does it i think I, I guess we'll i guess we'll come back to like the references later because everything about this album but especially the lyrics are so fucking dense but i love that <laughs> there's like specific shout outs and kyle you made a note actually that a highway got paved over my future uh verse two is apparently about liz fair I think I quote Liz Fair saying, uh, I won't decorate my love, which is a lyric from, I believe, the song Nashville. I had been, um, at that point, completely obsessively listening to uh, Liz Fair's entire discography, but I would sometimes solo cover the song Chopsticks in Nashville. There might be a video of it. But yeah, I was very very moved. There was a trio of songwriters that had the most profound impact on the direction of just the songwriting direction of Just Got Back, it would be Tim Kasher, Liz Fair, and Jeff Rosenstock, I think. Hell yeah. And also, 
well, should mention, if you want to talk about it, uh, Rave La- Abacus was birthed out of a ska band, Eggplant Dance-Off, correct? Absolutely. Eggplant uh, Dance-Off was a five- to seven-piece ska band for like a year and change, like a year and three quarters. But yes, there was my first my first band, and uh, yes, Rave La- Abacus was born out of it. And you I sing would... and play guitar, right? Oh, yeah. I would love to know what your favorite ska records are. Uh, no Gods, No Managers by Choking Victim, mm-hmm. the entire Operation Ivy like collection, because energy is great, but I like the whole collection. Uh, if whatever bomb records you call ska, yeah, yeah. Uh, those, um, everybody has different views on that. Uh, everything ASOB ever did, Good Luck by Big D and the Kids Table, uh, that almost does it. That's almost it. Oh, the slapstick. Oh. The slapstick record. Yeah. Oh, uh, slap. Yes. Yeah. I was surprised not to hear you uh, bring up Catch-22. Uh, Catch-22 record. It's very foundational for me, but the last time I listened to it, I uh, listened to Choking Victim instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Damn. laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. I actually think that I would still love Keys Be Nights if Thomas K hadn't done the ass backwards thing of remaking it. Um, yeah. Yes, I think that's whack. Yes. Yeah, it really, it's always left a bad taste in my mouth. It's really strange. Especially since all the other Streetlight stuff is, like, so strong. And when they went back to do Keys Be Nights, it felt very, like, le- like they were, like, dumbing down the sound that they were developing and kind of lost some of the rawness. And the only good new part is the new verse on Dear Sergio, which he had already done on that uh, Bandits of the Acoustic Revolution EP. Yeah, I, I haven't even heard that. I just always felt weird about it. I saw Catch-22 without him multiple times, you know, when I was like 13. And uh, I just thought it was so strange. Like, the band existed. That band kept putting out records. And then he, like, remade his old band's record with his new band. I don't know. I, maybe me and Capri should do Just Got Back, you know, just for, <laughs> you know, shits and giggles. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, it's so weird. They hate him so much, but they keep playing his songs. <laughs> All right. Um, honestly, Kyle, I have to give you so much credit for doing this uh, this structure because I was so overwhelmed. I think I would have been lost. But was there any hype around the band or your follow up to uh, the Mass Dancers demo at this time? Well, Mass Dancers. So th- only recently have I heard anyone call it like a demo. We thought it was like a full length. Um, oh, we, well, yeah, it's listed as a demo it. on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. It's but, pro- yeah, same person who put just got back on Spotify is probably <laughs> in Wikipedia. Um, yeah, there's also like a pod- another podcast was brought to my attention that was like uh, an analysis of Braveville Abacus's career, and it said that we were like a two piece, uh, and like I don't know from like Minnesota or something. Yeah, the mystique is large. You really don't know. You you just never know. Uh, Mass Dancers was definitely. Uh, our first full-length record, we sunk all the money we had into making a thousand copies of the CD. <laughs> so it, I would hope it wasn't a demo. Um, I'm sorry. What, what was the question about Mass Dancers? Now I'm like just laughing. I'm, I mean, did that did that record like uh, in you in your view did it have like a like an impact at the time? Was there like a was there like some hype building around uh, Brave Little Abacus? either no. in the local scene or like at a at a national level. No, not at all. No, I actually uh the night that we released Mass Dancers. So we worked on Mass Dancers my entire senior year of high school 
and we got it done in like the middle of the summer after my senior year of high school. And we booked this show with some friends in Kingston, New Hampshire on what are called the Plains. It's a big grassy like knoll. And we were going to close it. And then, you know, the idea was we have thousand, like a thousand copies of the CD. Hopefully we can sell like 50 of them. And the police shut it down, even though it was a town sponsored event after our first song or in the middle of our first song. We opened with Remember to Wave. The town shut it down. I think we sold one copy of the CD. All of our friends left and went to Friendly's. And we all went to Friendly's. I remember sitting in my pickup truck that I had at the time outside the Friendly's. And I was like, this is the worst night ever. And then the boxes of a thousand CDs of Mass Dancers continued to be used uh, to prop stuff up in my basement <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> uh, so, no, there was no uh, there. No, there we had up until that point. Our friends knew who we were. Um, some older kids who went to colleges around the area thought that we were curious if not funny we had won a battle of the bands which was very contested and uh other than that i there was one awesome like blog spot post about us that we found and we're so excited about and that was like the only review of our band in its entirety (laughs) but yeah so no there was no we just kept doing what we were doing we just kept playing the same types of shows and um yeah did you have like band goals at this time? Like, did you want a tour? Did you want to be signed to Epitaph? I didn't know what touring was when we made Mass Dancers. Okay. Um, I only knew what touring was in the context of like historical documentation, like watching like a movie like American Hardcore or um, <laughs> like, no, but for real, like I just say I, I, it was still new to me. My ska band just played like birthday parties and the same venue almost every weekend, this incredible historical place called the Sad Cafe, RIP. And Brave Little Abacus was like seemingly trying to be more sophisticated, but really didn't know didn't really know what to do. And then everything changes going into like post mass dancers going into just got back. That's when it's like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to tour. We're going to learn how to tour. I mean, I think at the time of mass dancers, I maybe was like, like one day I'll put a record out on discord records. Like, you know, there was like a little (laughs) bit of like that or one day I'll have like a successful, like independent, independent label. Um, but, uh, no, at, at Mass Dancers, the goal was make Mass Dancers and then spend a bunch of money on duplicating the CDs. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we at that time, no. And so it kind of makes sense that it went the way it did. We didn't really have an agenda yet. Yeah. After Mass Dancers going into Just Got Back, like that's when you were like, OK, let's take this seriously. Let's tour. Let's send this up to labels or still. Well, we definitely were never going to send anything to a label. Um, for whatever for whatever reason, we never we never had that desire. Um, and I'm glad that we didn't because I, I I think that it would have not yielded any fruit. <laughs> but uh, but B, you know, I think it it kept us very independently motivated um, to do to do everything like our way, which you know gets heard in the music, gets seen in the way that we we operated. But yeah. It's just a little, yeah, a little bit later on where we kind of discover what we could possibly be doing uh, touring wise. 
um, that's sort of like a big shift. And then also a goal that changed after Mass Dancers, just to, you know, put a bow on that era, was we quickly didn't feel much about that material. And so I remember a distinct feeling of saying, well, this next thing, whatever the next thing is, who knows? Um, but it's something that I want to last. It's something that I want to, you know, really sink my teeth into and be able to play a lot and enjoy playing a lot because we quickly tired of performing mass dancers material. So around the time that you're writing, just got back, like how was the band operating in the beach podcast? You said you wrote a lot of this album by yourself and it was your first semester of college. And if I remember my first semester of college, I was a fucking wreck. And I think, I mean, if I can draw from the lyrics of this album, like, and just like the content, a tumultuous time. So, like, can you bring us back to that time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was 18. I was, I, I kind of like a, you know, to use the word tumultuous again, I had kind of a tumultuous high school experience. I mean, who doesn't? Um, but it ended on some weird notes. All my friends were older uh, both members of Brave Abacus were a year older than me. So my senior year got really weird. I felt very like unprotected and very like seen, uh, because I didn't have my, you know, like my band was kind of like my, my identity. Uh, and then they were, you know, gone though. They were still like basically down the street. Um, but my senior year, I got simultaneously much better at school because I was discovering that I enjoyed reading, I enjoyed writing. I was starting to connect being a musician to things that were more scholastic, which really kind of changed my whole like worldview. But then I also was like really acting out. I got kicked out of my my high school music program uh, my senior year. I got like I because of like all these altercations with between myself and them. They tried to kind of vengefully get me so I didn't graduate, you know, this, that, oh and the third. Yeah, it was like a whole thing. A lot of mass dancers is about that. My senior year just gets really weird. And then I, the one thing I wanted to do was I wanted to go to the university in New Hampshire because Zach and Andrew went there for the, for anyone who doesn't know the two other members of Brable Abacus. Uh, all I wanted to do was that I didn't really care about, you know, where I'd go to school. I was like, I'll probably study to be an English teacher but we'll do this band thing. You know, we'll live near each other and do this band thing. And I got into every school I applied to except that one. And I was like, are, are you kidding me? And again, I only wanted to go there because I needed to do the Brave Abacus. So I basically went to the University of New Hampshire's lesser version of themselves. Uh, it's just another <laughs> campus. Uh, so I went there. It's like more of a community college feel. And with the intention of then after a semester or after a year, I'd make it to to the big time. Uh, so I'm living at home so that I can go to school and also have a job and do my band. And it was a very strange experience. And I think a lot of it had to do with my senior year of high school was so fucked up. And I was it. And I think in a normal teenage circumstance, the thing that would solve that for someone with the opportunity and the privilege to go to, to you know, get a college education um, would be that they go away. And whether it's poetic, whether it's psychosomatic, I don't know. I think that I would have been in a different spot had I gone away, even if like the band just took a year off. But instead, I stayed in the exact same place doing the same exact things and just sort my wheels just kind of spun. Um, 
But that being said, I, it was a very, very, um, it was a very tumultuous time, but it was very fruitful for, I, I spent a lot of time alone. I spent a lot of time with music. I had, you know, probably at, up until that point in my life, my most intimate relationship with music I was constantly driving around, listening to records, constantly alone. If I was with someone else, I was listening to records with them. I had a very small social circle. So yeah, really strange, stressful times, but music was so dominant in it. And um, it was it was pretty wild. Um, sorry, that went pretty far. <laughs> but <laughs> That's uh, perfect. I definitely can see like uh like the scholastic academic part of of your life like bleeding into the music, especially when you read the lyrics on Just Got Back. If I was just reading the lyrics um and had to like guess what you were majoring in, I would be like, Oh, this person is double majoring in English and philosophy. How would um, you ever know that? <laughs> well, geez, I I wonder it, you like drop reduction theory, which is like, <laughs> which is post positivism, which is like, like, uh, like a post empiricist view of the world, which is like, I, I remember like learning about that in like critical theory 300 or whatever. Like, um, it was all clicking together for me. It's like, I can't like stress enough how that, how much of an effect that has on the Rival Abacus's output, like philosophy. And music was just becoming synonymous. Like it's, you know what I mean. It's like it was all, it yeah. was all the yeah, same yeah. soup. Like, were the other two members of the band kind of on the same page that you were, or were they just kind of away at college, not as invested? Like, I guess like inter-band operational level. Like, what was it like at that point? Well, it was kind of a, it was a little bit dangerous of a time for us interpersonally because, like I said, I, I wanted to go to the University of New Hampshire specifically because they were there and we'd be able to do the band there. And what ends up happening is Andrew, the bassist, drops out and then Zach elects to go to Italy for a semester right, abroad. Right. So it's like, Okay, like I'm looking at it like, oh, I'm like, oh, well, even if I had gone, we would have not, you know, we wouldn't have even been there together. Um, so at that time, the Bravel Abacus is like officially on pause. Like this is the first time since its inception in 2000 and late 2007, early 2008 that we're not playing any shows, which is like really strange. We were at least playing like monthly for that entire time. So at that time, I'm trying to just maintain you know a positive relationship with music through you know writing and and jamming with people i start this band called kira uh that was andrew on drums matt aspinwall on bass and singing and me on guitar and singing which was sick uh but we didn't do anything there's like nothing that exists from it um so yeah throughout this time Bravel abacus is just really on pause and when Zach finally gets back from Italy, and I've been having difficulty maintaining contact and, uh, you know, uh, musical productivity with Andrew. I, I, I do present to them uh, when, you know, Zach gets back from Italy that I, I think the band should break up. Um, because that, even though looking back, oh my God, four months or whatever it is, is not a lot of time. I mean, me and Caprice goes four months without doing, you know, jack shit. Um, and it's like, you know, but at the time I, I just said, I, this can't, 
this can't possibly be right. The momentum is just gone. So, yeah, we, you know, basically and other things had happened in that time. A lot of our lives were were equally complicated. Um, I was 18. They were 19 and 20, respect, respectfully. That period of transformation for nine out of 10 people is so large, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I did, you know, it ends basically with me saying, well, I think it's um, I think it's time to, to call it. But we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> why didn't it end like was it just like i've got this album to present to you guys or like at that point i had an idea for it um I, the songs were definitely not done um they definitely weren't be- done being written some of them were um but i i definitely had an idea for what i wanted and i didn't know if it would be i didn't know if it would be the brave abacus or maybe this kira thing or maybe yeah. something else i didn't know but what really kept the band together was Andrew, who at that time, I, I believe on a, on a personal and professional level, had the most difficulty fitting the band into his life. He, he wanted it. He, he needed it. And he wanted the band to, to continue. And therefore, I did as well. I didn't want to break it up. I was an emotional 18-year-old who was... Um, not getting my way you know what i mean like uh, to me it was like uh, well we're not playing any shows and we're not you know we're not famous and blah 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 blah. so yeah so we maintained and uh we came to the conclusion that very night um after discussing that we wouldn't break up that we would uh you know come together creatively and make this thing going specifically into this album did you have any objective in terms of making something bigger than your past material because while i think both of the lps sonically like fit i think there's a way bigger scope in discomfort mass dancers was an incredible trial run for us because we quickly disliked it so much that we had basically figured out everything not to do in making a record and just got back was made with the intention of of lasting kind of like i was saying about like wanting to play the material like for as long as possible. Yeah. Um, and that I think that that on a on a really really personal level, I think I took that to heart because I didn't stand by some of the material on Mass Dancers so quickly, and it was made so quickly, and I was like, oh, when you when you publish music, you gotta li- you gotta live with it. You know what I mean? And like here I am with a band that like two releases way back has like euphonium and like game boy samples and like yeah. <laughs> ren and ren and stimpy samples and i'm like oh this shit doesn't go away like what like <laughs> i listen to on the mind of princes this isn't you know like i listen to orchid like I, this is what <laughs> um <laughs> i wasn't really listening to orchid but i thought orchids looked wicked cool um, <laughs> they, they, they did look wicked cool <laughs> so uh yeah, it was. I, I I don't know how else to say it. it was made with the intention of, of lasting, and I knew that I wanted to make. I knew I wanted to make a record that challenged me, on a very personal level, the uh, challenged me not just in like technicality. I didn't like looking back on Mass Dancers like all the tapping. And all the crazy uh, Zach Hill impression drumming. You know, some some of it was really fun. And I still fucking love Hella. But I wanted something a little bit different. Um, I Like I, I said before, I was obsessively listening to Liz Fair. I was obsessively listening to Automatic for the People. I was listening to Scrambles. I wanted to make something that wasn't like 
like the oh this is actually interesting just a quick interesting tidbit when the band existed we talk about um you know people after it broke up calling it emo only thing we got called while we were a band was math rock which right that one bummed us out but then i'm not gonna lie when mass dancers came out i was like oh shit i did it i did the thing that like (laughs) you know what i mean i was just like oh my god like we might as well have covered fucking you know uh the guitar hero one soundtrack like uh, (laughs) dragon force or whatever um i mean i was yeah so i uh so going in yeah the objective was to make something that just had a deeper resonance with us really for us you know and I guess recording wise on this one, which is gonna be a lot to tackle, um, this was all I'm done. Here. On, I'm here. <laughs> this was all on your own. There was no studio, correct? Uh, the only technical studio assistance was um, my guitar teacher and very good friend at the time, Eric Clemenzi, mixed uh, a couple of tracks, and but everything was engineered, uh, tracked. Everything was just us. Um, on the same exact equipment uh, that we had been using up until that point. Uh, We were getting better at it, though, you know, that's a little bit hard to believe for some people, but in my personal opinion, we were getting better at it. But, uh, yeah, like you said, production, I don't know if there is any production on this. (laughs) There's a lot of engineering, um, but there's, I don't think there's any production. Uh, Like, Um, was there ever an option of going to a studio? No. No. Because of uh, money. Um, well, I guess money and also it's like who's gonna understand what you're doing. Yeah, I didn't I didn't like that. I mean I didn't like the idea of of it being so confined. We were just re- we were really elitist too in that because we you know I liked I was growing to a point where I thought it was very rewarding to start to look at like microphones and microphone placement. And, you know, that type of engineering or sound design, whatever, as an instrument in and of itself. Uh, and that had been going on for the entirety of the band. I mean, Brigal Abacus' fourth member for three years was Cubase. I mean, it's like the sound of the band is like, oh, we can time stretch this. Oh, we can we can bump this vocal up an octave. And we can reverse it. That's wild. You know, like I didn't EQ anything, but I knew how to do that. And so by the time I just got back, it was like, oh, the guitars will sound different depending on where you put the mic on the amp. It'll, you know, maybe you can set up a room mic and you can, you know, you can get a little bit of the room sound or, you know, we only have two mics on the drums. But if I hit them considerably louder and they get a little distorted, maybe that will sound good. (laughs) You know, that became a a kind of like an MO of the band. And so it just wasn't even I, I wouldn't even say that money came into it. It wasn't something we were interested in. We just were like we enjoyed the process of making it ourselves way too much to put it in someone else's hands, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. There so this recording uh suffered two computer crashes. Yeah. Uh we would do everything on my dad works uh in like high tech like software sales, like a lot of like like antivirus stuff. And so he always would like move around jobs and, you know, they'd give him a, some sort of notebook, you know, a Dell or HP or whatever. And then he would, you know, it would basically be like, um, you know, retired. And I would just get this like, you know, hand me down laptop, which I was really fortunate about, you know, because I got to play pinball on XP and everything. Um, <laughs> but I mean, these were shit. These were shit machines. These were not, you know, like once you started really uh, tracking stuff on them, it, it got crazy. Uh, but yeah, we suffered a couple of crashes. 
we had suffered one on Mass Dancers too, and the song and strange the song that got lost was like never recovered. But what just got back, the two se- sessions that were lost, we had mixdowns of uh, for practice purposes, and so that those the, the tunes that made the cut on the uh, on the album. So we were fortunate. Uh, it was sad at first, but then uh, I don't know. They don't sound that much different than the rest of it. So worked out. <laughs> so on the Beach podcast, you refused to cough up which songs they were. Can well, I? It's- it's funner for people to guess. Yeah, you should take a can, guess. Can I make a guess? And I could strike yeah. it from the podcast. Is it? Ding ding ding! You can, yeah. you because you can hardly hear your vocals at the end of. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it was like <laughs> we were losing our shit. I bought like a terabyte hard drive. I, I worked at this shoe store and made like just enough money to like you know, like get around where I needed to get around and drive a little extra. And I like, I was like, Oh my God. Like I had to go to my parents and I was like, I was like, can I please borrow money for a, for a, a hard drive? <laughs> this can't ever happen again. <laughs> Cause I loved the, I was so devastated, but I, you know, it's, it's a good lesson in humility. You know, you accept <laughs> it, you move on, you work on the next thing. I'm also, I'm also glad about that. Cause my favorite song on the on the record that's cool that's cool yeah well like another specific thing i think the keys and the synth and all those things sound way better than everything else yeah that's uh i i i would agree with that i would agree with that especially on some of the tunes we got very creative in how we wanted to record record keyboards we did a lot of experimentation with plugging them into guitar amps and pedals and um you know, miking, miking amps rather than doing any keyboards uh, DI'd. There's even some keyboards that were done to cassette and then dubbed in. So there's a lot of a lot of warmth there that um, was uh, really fun to e- experiment with. Um, and I was re- I was really like proud of the work that we got out of it. Really like kind of foundational for how I like later just continued to try to learn how to make records. But that was super fun at that time. And we and Zach was all in on it too. That was the best part because collaborating with those two compositionally was great. But at just at the point of just got back, all of a sudden we were collaborating on all like levels of it. Like not just like what sound goes where, but what is the sound in the first place. So that was that was just really fun. And so it's cool that that kind of comes across to listeners sometimes. Mm-hmm. Are there any other like stories about the recording days? Yeah, Um, the I had just started demoing songs for like the first time in my entire life. I'd never done that before writing Just Got Back and I would do it on cassette and, you know, in line with just how meta, you know, the entire, you know, fucking record is cover to cover. What ended up happening with me beginning to, you know, record solo and myself in various ways to cassette, uh, entered the, the record, um, you know, things like the way it started, that was just using a guide track to, uh, pile, no pile, pile, and, you know, recording the tape into the computer to have this like one guitar riff as like a guide track. And then that ejection just naturally occurred. I still don't even know how it happened. And then I just dragged it to the top of the song. Orange Blue with Stripes, the recording process of that was the second, maybe third time 
Andrew or I had ever used a four track cassette. And originally, like the the top of Orange Blue is Stripes is like two minutes of us going back and forth about what buttons we have to press. And little did we know it was like recording. Um, so things like, and, and I think that that's, that in and of itself is so indicative of the entire process. It was so much stuff being done for the very first time. And there's a beauty to that. And there's also a naivety of that in that. Uh, and it comes, you can hear it, you know, it's like something like, that's why nothing like no one could ever hurt my feelings talking about the production of just got back from the discomfort because it was fun to make. And I, we were like trying, but we didn't know, like it didn't sound bad to us. You know what I mean? Like if we released it and we were like, this sounds pretty shitty, then <laughs> that would have been bad, <laughs> um, but it didn't. And we, we thought a lot of it was kind of magic. So there's just a lot of things that were, are, have little special places for me. Uh, the ambient outros, those were all, th those were all like incredibly like fulfilling creative experiences, making both the one on Can't Run Away and the blah, blah, blahs. You can hear like the room we did the blah, blah, blahs went in. We had this keyboard going through two different PAs. You can hear like the windows rattling, <sighs> like, uh, and like a heater going. And we loved that. We thought that that was like, you know, Eno level production, <laughs> you know, we were, um, or like the can't run away one is like a t it's like one time stretched guitar note or something and we just thought it sounded like an orchestra probably goes on for way too long but it was cool to make <laughs> yeah a lot of things as you can see i mean going back to the question of like do i like talking about it i think i'm at a point in my life where i'm more excited to share that type of stuff than i ever have been before because yeah. it's like fast because it's now fascinating to me 10 years out right. you know mm -hmm. <laughs> like do you think this uh, oh, did it end up sounding like what you wanted it to sound like? Some of it did. I remember the first time I heard, like when we got, like my guitar teacher helped us mix. One of the songs he helped us mix was Pile No Pile Pile. And the end was supposed to sound like My Bloody Valentine. And I remember the first time I heard like the guitars and like the piano mix. I was like, whoa. I was like, we did it. Um <laughs> And so that was like cool. And that, so I think that kind of sounded like it did in my head. There's a lot of little things that did sound right. I remember once we got the Marvel versus Capcom samples in on the second track, uh, Please Don't Cry. I remember I was like, whoa, like that's what I had in my head. Um, but then other things were surprises or, you know, didn't go the way. Yeah. You know, other things kind of felt more on the fly. You know, we they were thought out, but I hadn't imagined it. Like Orange Blue with Stripes is a great example. That song was very magic, like unplanned kind of mistake. You know, it was just going to be piano, and then it became this whole other thing. Thankfully, but but yeah, a good amount of it. What are like? Are those like actual strings on a highway got paved over my future? Strings like the, oh, do, the, do, the do 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 do. Oh no, that's um. That's a synthesizer. Okay. Yeah. Keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I figured it was a synthesized string because it just sounded like so frantic and yeah. <laughs> like alien. Um. <laughs> yeah. That song's fucking insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so the album hits band camp May 29th. Kyle's notes are that there was no plan, no physical release, no record label, no record release party. 
Well, we um, did have we had a show booked the next right. day. So I wanted it to be out for that, but it was not a release party at all. But it was a house show that we were playing. <laughs> so that is correct, yes. Do you remember the lineup of that house show? Just curious. Yeah. Um, Comma played, that band I brought up before. I think uh, Horny Vampire definitely played. Oh, this incredible band, Luau, um, that had member uh, shared two members, three members, actually. All three members. It was a trio. Incredible band. They were all in an awesome New Hampshire band that predated Brave Abacus a few years called Bravo fucking Bravo. Um, mm-hmm. Cause one of the, it was one of their houses. It was like a going away party to this house that many of us had like orbited. Some of us had lived in uh, Zach and Andrew technically lived there. We recorded a ton of just got back in that house. Um, so that was the other reason we were really excited about like playing it's goodbye party. Uh, you know, cops showed up whole type of thing. Uh, very similar to the, uh, actually to the breakup of the, or the way the mass dancers quote unquote release show went down was, uh, we played, I think we were in the middle of playing can't run away. Maybe I know we were playing a just got back song and one of our good friends was very, very drunk and they were screaming that we should just play the Buffalo or stop playing. Uh, I remember that. And I was like, oh, I was like, BLA's starting to get too weird for our friends. <laughs> um, so that was, that's like a, a good memory I have. But yeah, I just remember I stayed up really late that night and no one really talked to me about the record except uh, just a couple of friends who were excited for it to be done. Like people who knew me, who knew how hard we were working on it uh, and came to that party. Like I, I had a couple of nice conversations that night about that. But then everything kind of kind of got regular for a minute, just like the other one. <laughs> but so like you would spend so much time, you know, trying to keep this album even like available just with all like the recording mishaps and stuff like that. And you just threw it up on Bandcamp, just like kind of un, unremarkably. Yeah, um, we had dabbled in the process of making Just Got Back. We got a Tumblr. And that oh. was the first that was like the first thing other than MySpace we had. And every once in a while I would post a picture of like us recording and like talk about what we were what we were doing. It didn't get like a lot of traction. I I didn't know what to do. I um I I really didn't know what to do. I at the same time I was playing with this awesome ska band called Interrobang. I was playing bass and guitar with them. And we were making a record uh with Jeff uh Rosenstock and I really was just starting to learn like a way that a band would promote themselves via him and what he did with, you know, on the music industry. And that introduced me to Laura Stevenson and what Laura was doing to begin promoting her, um, her solo work. Uh, so it was all like really new to me and I didn't know what to do. And this Bandcamp thing happened. I couldn't tell you when Bandcamp formed. I, I, it feels like it happened right before Just Got Back came out because I had never heard of it until I didn't know what to do with Just Got Back. And Bandcamp just felt perfect. Like, it just felt, like, really, really perfect. Um, but I think you combine that not really knowing what to do with also this, like, insane, like, hyperactive work ethic and, like, fear of time passing, and you get that. Like, it wasn't out of spite and it or or it wasn't like it wasn't supposed to be strange it was just like we have this show tomorrow i really want it out by tomorrow mm-hmm. you know and uh i knew that like a physical release wasn't an option yeah it was just a different time it's just like weird like now i feel like if the brave advocates had formed like five years after i just would have seen more so much more of how an independent band operates 
And then I would have just started to copy and paste like how that applies to what we were doing. But that just not that just didn't go down that way. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. Snowing yeah. just tossed up that, their album as soon as it was done as well. So I feel like this era really didn't have just, like, good examples of who to follow. Unless oh, yeah, you were definitely. on, like, yeah. a record label. Yeah, this I, yeah. this era of emo uh, that, that Brave Little Abacus was in the cohort of always seemed to me like it came right after the internet had revolutionized accessibility to music, but right before DIY bands had figured out how to weaponize that. That That's put a really, really great way. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree with that entirely. And yeah, I mean, I, I always think one of the most like telling elements of the Brable Abacus's relationship with the internet and how to release music is the demo was just the four songs we put on to our MySpace because I wanted kids in my high school to hear my band. Um, we were using MySpace's, you know, track presentation capabilities as a record. And that felt wild and new. Uh, and then we go way in the opposite direction for uh, Mass Dancers, which is a huge mistake. So then we reel it way back, for better or worse, for Just Got Back. Um, yeah, it just, I don't know. There just wasn't that great of a roadmap for it. And it would have helped, too. Like, we weren't around other people who were putting out releases at the rate that we were or with like the same intentions that we were so that was also really kind of stifling for us because it would have been way different if like all these bands we were friends with and everyone together was like we're all going to put out a seven inch this year or something we could have pulled our resources and done a little bit more um but that just wasn't the case for us so we just did it yeah so you kind of said like there were some friends talking about it at the party but like beyond that was there buzz like no. on the internet at, at this point no i mean but then again it's like where where would people talk about this on the internet at that time yeah i mean we had the numbers i remember you were able to see i you know just like now uh it was just a little bit more elementary on Bandcamp. you could see like where people downloaded it uh how you know where they maybe found the link or something and and the numbers were like really really bad i think for a long time you know, it was probably under 200 people had that record. But I, I didn't I don't remember really being disappointed because what happened right after just got back was through meeting Jeff and Laura, I started booking way more shows and hosting touring bands. And we also started opening for Bomb and Laura whenever they were in Boston. Like right after just got back comes out, we start to play. I move out of my parents house Zach and I live in an apartment together. You know, I turn, I guess, yeah, that September, we moved into an apartment. I turned 19 and uh, we play, we're starting to play with Bomb every like four or five months because, you know, Bomb was touring incessantly. Mm-hmm. And so we're playing like the best shows we've ever played, you know, at these real venues where our backing tracks are like through like monitors and we can hear the drums, <laughs> you know, for the first time ever. And, uh, and we're having such a blast with the material. So I got to say, as you know, naive as it probably sounds, I don't really remember being worried. I don't remember being worried about whether or not people liked or knew about Just Got Back. It didn't worry me until I tried to book a tour, until I tried to, when I really tried to dig into promoting the band. And that was when it hit me, that I was like, woof. Okay, this thing that... I think went well, might have not gone as well as I think it did. Because, um, like, people wouldn't 
book you because of how the record sounded or just kind of how challenging the music was? Yeah, something like okay. that. I just remember it hitting me like things not being as plug and play as I like would think they they were because uh, I just had the you know, I had friends you know, people older than me in other bands and things sort of giving me contacts. And, um, and I was, and I was booking more touring bands. Um, I was booking touring bands for the first time in my life, you know, hosting touring bands at my parents' house and my new apartment. I was so excited, uh, to be doing all that. And so I just was seeing it and was like, Oh, Brave Abacus will be able to do this and meet the right people. And, uh, and I just didn't know how to do it. And I was probably emailing some of the wrong people, but I think a lot of them, and this isn't just self-deprecation. I think a lot of them heard it you know, you would go, it would be the band camp link and, you know, you just hear something that you didn't expect. And how the hell is that going to come off live? And there was no video of us anywhere. No one would have even known what we were like live. Um, so that was when it hit me that I was like, Oh, the band's not progressing. Like we've played the best shows we've ever played. I'm proud of this record, but we can't get out of new England. Like, what are we going to do? You know? What was it like when you were actually playing with, like, Bomb and Laura? Like, were people into you and stuff? Uh, I think the crowd would be kind of split. But to be honest, I think that I think that their interest in us and the way that they presented us really helped. I think there's people who would go to a Bomb show and see Brave Little Abacus and hate Brave Little Abacus. But then when Jeff <laughs> presented that he liked Brave Little Abacus, I think they got turned. And I don't mean that in like a weird way. I just think like that was sometimes the reality. Some people really liked it. But like we were, we opened to there's this one show. We had our friend Matt go up on stage with a cigar in his mouth and like a top hat and present us as New Hampshire's premier 2008 Battle of the Band winners. Like and then eye to eye from the Goofy movie soundtrack blasted through the PA while we like ran on stage and the faces were just like blank. Like we thought it was the funniest thing in the world. (laughs) Um, you know, but there's like a fucking like, you know, like return to the pit, like photographer there, you know, it's like, it was like everything took itself so seriously. Um, and it was just like, and at this time we're playing the backing tracks through a Dreamcast with a small like CRT on stage. People just thought it was a joke, you know? Um, but uh, I think that some people got turned on to it. And I think I think a lot of people saw the similarities. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, there were certain things that we were doing that were plugging in play similar to some aesthetic bomb stuff because we were ripping them off. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I think some people dug it. They were the best shows we had ever played. I mean, the, that, those moments changed my life forever. Like that, those couple of years of shows, I made relationships that changed my life forever. And I just played shows that were extremely, you know, important and pivotal for us so that that helps fill in like a little bit of like the blanks um in the band's public history because uh if if you were to just kind of like read the wikipedia page uh written by the person who uploaded just got back um (laughs) nice call it it would be it would be they released just got back they released uh okame and then they were gone um but in fact, it, it kind of seems like uh, just got back kind of fueled uh, like like an energy in in the local scene. Um, and would you say that kind of like spilled into like the enthusiasm for making Okame? Oh, yeah. 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 I don't think we would have ever 
made that EP had we not played those shows and also got Wicked into Paramore. Um, <laughs> but, um, well, it was that, but then also friends of ours straight up were like, we want to put out a seven inch of you. And we were like, oh, that's sick. And they were like, but it has to be like a seven inch. So it can't have like seven minute long outros. <laughs> like you have to write like three pop songs. <laughs> um, right. And that was our estimation of how to write music that would fit on that small of a Frisbee. But yeah, uh, so it was like a combination of that energy and also like our friends uh, presenting that to us, which was cool. Because we pro if they hadn't, we probably would have just broken up at that point um, right before Ukume. Because we broke up right when Ukume came out. So what was, uh, if you don't mind talking about it, what was like the the driving or conflicting factors behind the band deciding to call it quits? Um, like pretty much right when Okume happened. Uh, it's kind of fascinating just because it's the same. It's almost the same exact situation as when we were going to, when I presented that we should break up before making just got back. Um <laughs> It's like almost like identical going into making Ukume or like the last like year of the band. Um, we're distant at the same level that we were with just got back. Um, I think uh, Zach took a job in a different state. He was in Massachusetts for an entire summer. So we played no shows that entire summer. We all hung out once and we went to an against me and screaming female show and like got pizza and then like went our separate ways. But yeah, we were like, just really distant. I like was living alone. Uh, I was going to be living with Andrew, but then like that didn't work out. So I like lived alone and worked at the same shoe store I'd worked at for like a little while and like watched Arrested Development like four times in one summer. Wasn't oh, 21, yeah. you know, like, I don't know. I just, it was a strange time. Uh, David Comes to Life by Fucked Up had, hap had come out and like my favorite records by like one of my favorite bands of all time, The Measure S.A., one of my favorite Lemuria records. I like got all this, uh, all this incredible music was coming out that I was absolutely smitten with. And I was sitting there being like, I don't have a fucking band. Like, what am I doing? Like this band that I had taken, you know, all three of us had taken so seriously and put so much work into was just like not doing anything. And I know I wanted it to tour. I wanted to play fest. I wanted to, uh, and Ukume is not, you know, done or out at this point, because uh, we decided to break up way before we were we were doing Ukume. Um, but yeah, it was just bad. Like it just didn't make any sense. And what's sad about that is, little did we know that for the first time after Ukume, we probably could have left New England and we probably could have done some of the things that I had wanted the band to. Um, but you're just not that smart when you're fucking 19, you know, I mean, or 20. You're not like, or at least I wasn't. So yeah, it was yeah. just like distance, you know. Yeah, that's like that's an interesting contrast because like as as the band seems to be like finally hitting some sort of upward trajectory, the inner workings of the band itself is on like kind of like a more distant trajectory. And I think probably that's that's why pretty soon after the Brave Little Abacus broke up, that's when that's when the buzz started happening. Like Yeah. Because it's, the trajectory, yeah. yeah, the momentum was there. I, I think because it was so concentrated on the internet, it might not have like translated to the band yourselves at the time. Well, I mean, we sold out of those seven inches real quick, and I felt oh, real, yeah. real stupid. Um, I mean, we didn't make that many, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of odd 
oddness about our breakup, we also we got a live drummer, you know, in the in the process of breaking up. Like we were we had always played to backing tracks previously to that. And then, you know, now none of it really mattered. And we were we were just like, I met this kid, you know, Nick Marone and was like, you want to play drums in Bravel Abacus? And he had like seen Bravel Abacus at a bunch of shows. And he like, you know, thought I was like kidding or whatever. And then I was like, no, we should like jam. I don't know if it'll work out. And uh, it did. And so we're playing like better shows, <laughs> like like we're sounding better because the backing track thing was so up and down. So a lot of it just didn't make any sense. It's like we should have worked it out better, but then it wouldn't also be what it is. I mean, had that band continued, you know, we, maybe we would have done something stupid or put out like a like a really bad Paramore cover record or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> are you the one? Are you the one playing drums on all those? Uh early Brave Little Abacus releases? Yeah, I'm playing drums on everything except once in a while, if we were recording in a weird way, Andrew would play some percussion, uh, like uh, like auxiliary percussion, or like he's doing some of the drums on, um, like uh, on Just Got Back, I think he has he does all the drums on, uh, other than like the electronic ones on Orange Blue with Stripes, because I was trying to like bit crush mm. them in like real time. Um, yeah, but I play all like the drum kit, yeah. That that's really fucking impressive, actually. Yeah. Just because uh, I think the the drumming is like uh, su- such a big part of like the the crescendos and tone of that record, and like having like all that composition in your head, like along with the guitar composition. I'm sorry, I'm like totally fangirling right now. <laughs> I loved playing the drums. Like I I just love playing the drums. Um, my dad was a drummer. We got a drum kit pretty young, so that. Eggplant Danskoff could practice at my house because my parents really liked having um, like the band do stuff at our house. They were like those types of parents. They really they were really supportive of all that. Yeah, they uh, I, I liked playing the drums. There was like a long time where like no one was home in my house when like I was in like Eggplant Danskoff and early on in BLA. So I could just come home after school and just play drums. Um, there was definitely a period where I did that way more than I played guitar. Um, but I liked playing drums on the Bravel Abacus records. I wish that I knew more about how to record them <laughs> sometimes, but I liked playing them a lot. I'd have a lot of fun doing it, and it felt like a part of the songwriting, if that if if that makes any sense, I guess. Yeah, well, like, I would imagine it'd be really difficult as the primary songwriter to explain all the tempo changes and the different parts to a different drummer. Yeah, yeah, it, it, that's, I think that's part of the reason it never happened. The only reason we didn't have a drummer at first was because we didn't know anyone that we wanted to have play the drums. We didn't think it would last. Um, but then we really liked the backing track thing. Um, and then me playing the drums and that kind of evolving as like an aesthetic choice in and of itself, it really came after. Um, that's why like you, you kind of hear like on the demo, there's like not a lot of drum kit. Um, there's a lot of loops. Like uh, there's a lot of songs that like is a drum beat that I just chopped up and then like, looped in the daw mm-hmm. but then yeah my drumming my my drum set playing it was like an unconscious choice that it became kind of integral to the sound of the band yeah so the album kind of leaves the internet and i think the story is that the band camp went down because at that point you couldn't have it free forever yeah i didn't get how it worked um somebody we got like a right around the time of Ukume, we got we made like a Facebook page because um, we had like all just gotten Facebooks for like the first time. And someone like messaged one of us on a Facebook and was just like, hey, like it that costs money, even though you say like it's free. 
And uh, and so I I looked into Bandcamp and it was like you had exceeded because like when Ukame came out, that was when people started to download Just Got Back, uh, like a lot of people who obviously had no idea who we were before that. Um, and so I didn't know what to do. I like logged into Bandcamp and all of a sudden every track cost money. And it was like you ran out of free downloads and in a very similar, you know, throw caution to the wind way that it got uploaded i was like oh well for now i just need to take it down um because i don't want to charge you know I, we're we it's free like it needs to be free just gonna um, kick you off the label <laughs> well i mean it was um it was important to us i mean we adopted a lot of a lot of um his philosophies and a lot of other people's philosophies but it was like really personally important to us yeah, yeah. so i took it so i took it down and then i don't even really remember the process of like considering putting it back up. I remember quickly putting something on Facebook, like, I'm sorry, it's just going to be down until we can get it free again. And then I think we just kind of, you know, the band's broken up. I just kind of moved on with my life. And then to my knowledge, the entire discography was available via a media, media fire link. And I was just like, Oh, that's perfect. Cause that's free. And I think I just like moved on with my life at that point. That's how I remember it going, but I could be very wrong. <laughs> Wait, so is that in conjunction with, with the songs being on YouTube with the Mediafire link? I they weren't on YouTube at that point. That okay. came I think I think that came I think that came later. Um I think um I also just want to stress for a second too. It, it's gonna sound really melodramatic, but I was so fucking bummed when the Brevil Abacus broke up. And I probably have some pretty serious revisionist history of like the process by which that music kind of left the internet. I could very well have like known it was leaving and being like, yeah, that sounds about right. Cause I, I was just not happy, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. Uh, so it's, I, it's hard to say. So it looks like all the stuff was, uh, I'm just thinking this is your friend, Seamus. Uh, I know Seamus now. Okay. Uh, they're, they're great. I've, I've met them in real life. Uh, they did not grow up around us. Uh, Seamus had never seen us. Seamus definitely discovered Bravel Abacus via uh, uh, Ukume being on quote unquote. Oh, wait. Okay. Yeah, because Seamus has all of your stuff on YouTube and looks like it was all uploaded in 2012. Um, oh, okay. And so then it must have been right around the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It must have been. Yeah. Because I remember this album just kind of being on YouTube in this unorganized fashion of some videos had three songs in a row in like one right. video and then the next one would have one um but they all had the lyrics and the media fire download link oh nice yeah seamus she changed the game yeah. <laughs> they, they saved the day seamus if but. you're listening i like your soda reviews i think your whole channel is great oh yeah killer soda reviews absolutely killer yeah i mean i came for the brave little abacus and i stayed for these zany monologues and uh soda reviews <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah and then pretty shortly after the brave little abacus breaks up they become a phenomenon on the the mew board of 4chan were you like uh active on 4chan at all during this time no it fucking terrified me uh the only thing <laughs> yeah. i knew about 4chan yeah. was like my friend uh who's very dear to me who is sampled in multiple places across the uh um, BLA discography named um, well, I'm not going to say his name whatever uh, he, but he was more familiar with it than me and he was one of the first people that told me like there's a thing like going on with 
Brave Little Advocates on 4chan. And I was like, I don't want to know anything about it. Because, <laughs> like, I honestly, like, I thought, like, 4chan was, like, the devil. Like, it terrified the shit out of me. I still don't really know much about Mew uh, or MU. I, I really did. I, it, I don't know. I, it's still kind of, like, a mysterious to me but i know that it played a role in it in its circulating for sure i mean to be fair i also don't really have much knowledge of meal because 4chan is an awful place just a, a wretched hive of scum and villainy um <laughs> but i i remember like i first heard about brave little abacus i think probably late 2012 or early 2013 through the absolute punk forums oh and that's sick yeah and then after that, I started seeing pe- more people talking about it on like Last FM and then Tumblr. And then around 2014, 2015, it hits Reddit. And that's when it, that's when it started to seem like Brave Little Abacus was like the legend was building to be uh, much larger than it, it seems to be uh, when they were around. Yeah, uh, that's definitely true. I got a Reddit, I think, in 20. 20- 15 and i got a reddit because like uh i wanted to know more about evangelion and then i definitely (laughs) like like that's why i got a reddit i didn't really know what reddit like was at first um i kind of uh naively associated it sort of like with a 4chan type of thing and i you know was you know right and wrong i guess but yeah i was just like i bet i bet somebody knows what this is all about, like this thing I love now, like on Reddit. So I got a Reddit uh, and then, you know, definitely was just like, oh, like search the Brave Little Abacus uh, and was like, hot damn, Reddit <laughs> fucking loves them some Brave Little Abacus. Um, yeah. That was one of the first times in the past 10 years that it even kind of hit me. And it was hilariously like, you know, around that time, that I was like just kind of gearing up to be like, I'm going to start a new band. So it was like kind of hilarious. It was totally in the rear view, but it just made me kind of, it was definitely funny. In doing some like research on like the 4chan stuff, which I don't even know if like 4chan is still a thing or not based on what I was finding. At one point, someone said that they were you and said that there was, and this was 2016, I think it was that you had more brave little abacus on the way. Yeah. I heard about that. I think that that's really funny. Like, I kind of, like, applaud the person who did that. But what I think is funnier about it is that anyone who was, like, participating in that thread thought that I had a 4chan account. Like, or was on 4chan. Like, that's what's so funny I, to me. I, I'm, I'm just like, these people really don't know anything about me. Like, it's not even in my character. I wouldn't be like, what up, 4chan? I got records on the way. Like... I don't know. I would just put it up on Bandcamp at midnight. Like, I wouldn't announce it on 4chan. Were you, was there ever a time that you were, like, reading something about you and, like, felt compelled to, like, join in on the conversation? No, except this one time someone on Reddit and uh, one of my, like, dearest friends sent it to me for my birthday. This was their birthday present to me sent me an analysis of mass dancers that was about uh, a child i had conceived i read that (laughs) and like hidden yeah a very close friend of mine printed that out and wrapped it and mailed it to me for my fucking birthday (laughs) (laughs) and it was just like happy birthday i'm sorry the internet knows about your secret child (laughs) 
<laughs> um, and that was like the only time that I was just like, could I get into some sort of trouble if someone actually thinks I have a child? That reminds me, though, speaking of trouble, I did get harassed by like a prank caller like stranger um, for a little while. That really freaked me out because they had my parents address and they were calling my parents claiming to be me. That was really weird. That I kind of forgot that that happened, but that was kind of tied into the like being terrified of 4chan thing. And uh, a second Facebook of me like oh, happened no. and like a bunch of my friends got like harassed. And I never associated that with BLA fandom at all. I was just like, because they like referenced some BLA stuff. I was like, oh no, like, oh no, this is bad. You know what I mean? Uh, and it went away fast, uh, which was really good. It was just like for the span of like a few weeks. But that that was a moment that I and I started to I think it was like my sister or someone was just like, you have to start being more careful about like where your personal information is on the internet. Because I think like my parents phone number must have been like on my MySpace or something um, or maybe on like Bravel Abacus is be literally being like, if you want to book a show, call like five, 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 five. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, because she was just like, you know, there's just like people who know your your name that you're you're never going to meet. She's like, that's just kind of a new paradigm for you and it and it was not that uh not that it means you know that much but in that context it, it did so that there was a moment there but other than that i mean you know it's mostly just like i mean i don't look all all that much um i've met some amazing people through it you know i have friends now because of it which is cool i don't know so there's also rumors that you don't have the album like what is on the internet is what we're gonna get do you want a a crazy exclusive scoop for the sports yes. center yes. of emo? Yes. Um, there. I'll just say. I'll say this. There's hope. There's hope. Um, I Ooh. found. I have a CDR of the the pre master mixdowns uh, that I found very recently. I'm never gonna find all the stems. I'm never gonna have all the stems. That's that's facts. But it's really nice. I have wave files of the the pre like the what we're, we just called mixdowns, you know, or whatever people would call them, pre masters. So uh, I can do something with those at some point. I don't know what it's gonna be yet, but it's gonna. What be have you something. been doing in quarantine, buddy? I've been I've been uh, <laughs> I've been working on tunes, and uh, I don't. I'm gonna become an influencer. I've been doing all the interviews. I mean, I'm just you know. Uh, but yeah, so I was very happy to discover that, uh, I saw it in my scribbled blue Sharpie handwriting on it. It's like, just, just got back mixed downs. And I was like, oh, this is sick. I bet it's like two songs. And then I was like, oh, hot damn. It's the whole thing. I was like, that's great. Uh, so that's exciting, you know? So yeah. you don't, you don't have any plan for that at the moment. Um, I'm excited to have it and I'm yeah. excited to explore options for what can be done with it. I'm almost glad that. It's just the mix downs and the stems are gone forever because I wouldn't want to remix the thing. I mean, that's to me, that gets into really weird revisionist territory. But um, but, you know, it not being like a bad MP3 and that type of thing. That's exciting. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? Do something with it. Cool. I mean, I'm sure you know that everyone wants this physically released. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love to do a physical release. I would love for it to be, you know, available um, on streaming and, and stuff, not via someone else's weird upload. Um, yeah. I'm excited to explore a bunch of options with it yeah. for sure. Cool. Um, well, Ellie, where do you want to go from here? 
Oh my god. Um, all right, let's talk about Malcolm in the Middle. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Malcolm in the freaking middle. That's what I'm talking about. Love yeah. Uh, so I think it's like, just on a personal level, it's pretty poetic that you recorded this record, um, like first semester of college, because my first semester of college, I rewatched Malcolm in the Middle like three times. Wow. Because to me, it really like, uh, it, it kind of like encapsulated my entire journey <laughs> in my life up to the first semester of college. And because I am a Malcolm in the Middle super fan, I can like identify the, the episodes that you are sampling from like immediately. So the first one, the one that shows up in uh, Pile No Pile Pile, that is Hal talking about his father's death um, yep. in season seven, which I feel like the lyrics of the song are not about the, the, the death of a person. It's more about the death of a relationship. But it still evokes that same sense of like melancholy of feeling like something had the the capacity to be important or had the capacity to be more meaningful than it was. Uh, but there's still like this sense of if not if not failure, then like immediate nostalgia for what could have been. Which uh, sums up a lot of Malcolm in the Middle in general, honestly. That show is actually very psychologically complex. I agree. And something interesting about the the way that the Malcolm samples are structured throughout the album is that it's not like clearly defined act breaks. Uh, there's one at the end of the first song, and then one at the end of the penultimate song, and then the one at the end of Orange, Blue, with Stripes. Kyle, you have uh, number 11 written as uh, a Dewey sample. But it's not a Dewey sample. It's from season four, episode two, Cynthia talking to Malcolm about uh, the fact that he is trying to uh, impress people on his first day, freshman year of school, uh, which is absurd because the entire character of Malcolm that has been built up over the last three seasons is someone who thinks that he is superior to everyone else around him, like not just intellectually, but emotionally. He's very like uh, self-loathing narcissist type of character. Well, I think and, there's a Dewey sample earlier in the song, right? Oh, yes, yes. Because, uh, um, yeah, there's got to be two in that one song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the the Malcolm one is slightly more in keeping with the themes of the record in terms of self-sabotage in the, in the course of acceptance. And then the final Malcolm sample is from the pilot. Um, and... Obviously, it ends the record on, and at some point it stops. But the whole quote is, the best thing about childhood is that at some point it stops. That kind of wraps into, uh, feel like one of the main things about Just Got Back From The Discomfort is that it's uh, this middle ground between childhood and at least attempting to be an adult. And uh, uh, while you are glad that childhood is over, you kind of immediately are sad that it's over. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I agree with with a lot of that analysis. I love Malcolm in the Middle. I watched so much Malcolm in the Middle growing up. It was something that kind of tied me to my family. It was something we enjoyed together and I enjoyed on my own. Sampling Malcolm in the Middle for that record came very um, abruptly and very naturally. Uh, I, was, we were, I was very compelled to just do it. 
I will say uh, the act of sampling in Brave Little Abacus as it changed over the course of its discography was kind of, was kind of interesting. Just looking back on it, it was like something that initially started just kind of as a differentiation. It was like what made our band different. Like the most successful early sampling we did was like Yoshi's Island in like that song El Capitano, or at least to me, or like maybe the Ren and Stimpy stuff. But then over time, it was more, it became a little bit more sophisticated where it was like, then with like Mass Dancers, like the Akira stuff, it's like, I love this thing and I can somehow like, uh, I can present it. I can like re-manipulate it and like use it as an instrument. And then by the time I just got back, it was like, this is something that's important to me uh, or like maybe in, like an, even like an art form that I care about. Uh, and then just using that as a vehicle in which you can not only present your passion about it, but your, um, but the idea it, it, it gives out. And so with Malcolm in the Middle, on one level, Malcolm in the Middle was like so important to me. And uh, it's fascinating to hear that at the same time in your life, you know, it was, it felt really exemplary and uh, relatable. And it's like, but, you know, is that, and then, but it also was like fascinatingly connected to what we were, what I felt we were doing. So I don't know. I mean, I didn't search for them. That was one of the weirdest mm, things. Mm. They would like, I'd be watching the episode and then it would just happen. And I would just go get the laptop in the interface and I would just record it. Um, whereas like all the Akira samples and stuff uh, was all, like in Mass Dancers was all this like cutting and pasting and making it, making it into melodies. This was much more like I just hear the words and then, and then record them. It was just too, too fitting. Um, and then ending the record with the quote from the pilot uh, there, there was something about, you know, just funny, like eternal return of like always restarting Malcolm in the Middle. Granted, you as yeah. a fan, I'm sure you know, you, you can only get the, you know, way before it was ever streaming, the only DVDs you could own were the first season. So I've mm -hmm. seen the first season more than I've seen, you know, once it got taken out of syndication or moved to Sundance or whatever, I just watched the first season every month. So there was like this strange repetition. And I knew like so much of what I felt making Just Got Back wasn't going to go away. I, you know, I loved the idea of like calling it just got back from the discomfort. We're all right, but you're not all right. And you know, it's just, it's, and at some point it doesn't really stop. Yeah. Childhood, I guess does. I mean, I still feel like a kid right now. Um, but it's, it just felt like too good. You know what I mean? Like I was just all, it always came back to act one, scene one, whether or not it's the pilot to Malcolm in the middle, or if it's, you know, the tape ejection opening pile. It just felt, it felt like the right move. Same with the how quote. And then, you know, the, the other one that's, you know, I have a little bit of a tough time, you know, there's a little bit of a cringe factor hearing yourself do a spoken word verse, um, you know, in a song. I, I can't, you know, and I listened to it this morning. I was like, oh yeah, that doesn't like hold up for me. Uh, just a little bit, but you know, I loved the Dewey sample I, I loved that idea. And live, I fucking loved screaming me neither. <laughs> like, I loved that. That was so much fun. Because <laughs> I, I did feel that way. You know, I felt I, uh, in a variety of ways, I, I, uh, I felt too dumb to be upset or sad or something. Um, so, yeah, I stand by them all. That got kind of tangenty. I love Malcolm in the Middle, and I'm really glad that we sampled it on the record. Uh, it's another reason why the Spotify thing is a mess. I don't get, like, you can't take those out. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, what's up with that? Copyright. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Kyle, you pointed out Emily on Orange, Blue with Stripes could be a Pink Floyd reference, which also ties into the idea of looping the record so you can uh, have that eternal recurrence 
like we were talking about with the Prince Daddy record or Somewhere City, it's that isn't this where we came in? And uh, uh, just to kind of like expound a little further on uh, that I that idea of eternal recurrence, is that like something that you deliberately set out with the record to, to do to make it like this kind of like endlessly re-listenable world that you could immerse yourself in? Not from like the jump, not from the get-go, um, but probably like 50 to 75% of the way into making it, I was starting to feel that that was what was being made and songs were beginning to react to each other and things were starting to to repeat and you know move around so yeah like the last song that got wrote on for that record was orange blue with stripes and it's like just about the record so it's like it definitely became that somehow i don't really know how Uh, it's it just happened i guess so it became became kind of a concept record while you were doing the record yeah yeah and i didn't i don't think that i like used those like terms but what's funny about that is i've listened to so much music that kind of was in and itself somewhat concepty um like being like obsessed with the ugly organ or automatic for the people i mean these are records with like structural motifs um Mm. you know michael stipe has gone on record as just saying that automatic for the people is literally a record about him dying um you know there's songs where he's either about to die or dead or floating above his grave that fascinated me you know i i loved the reoccurrence of self-referencing in in tim Casher's work like across the board mm-hmm. um absolutely loved that i mean one of my favorite moments on just got back that i think is just so absurd and i would i can't believe that my 19 year old self and co did this but is the sample of andrew's voicemail telling me that map of the stars is playing on our local college radio. I mean, it's like that to me was not weird because of what I was into doing. You know what I mean? Like, but it's so fucking weird. Well, I've kind of thought that the voicemail referencing that song is what you're listening to in your car on the following song. Oh, see, that's really cool. That's really cool. And someone else on Genius annotated it the same way. That's fascinating. Um, could be. Could be. <laughs> that's cool. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. Could be. My personal experience with listening to those songs, it's like, well, they didn't just put that in there for no reason, did they? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> definitely didn't put it in there for no reason. Um, and I'm not being, like, facetious. There's okay. definitely a reason. <laughs> okay. uh, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, like... You know, with with Bravel Abacus, there's like random shit that's like, oh, that was like spaghetti at a wall. But like on most of Just Got Back, like there's a thought there. You know what I mean? Like it, there's definitely a reason for things or at the or I should say there was um, for because now it can be any reason. But yeah, uh, that's that's really cool. That's crazy. Do the instrumental uh, breaks like the ambient parts cue when an act is done and we're starting another one? Uh, I didn't look at it that way because I actually didn't have the, I don't think that I had the programming done at the point uh, other than maybe boys theme. They weren't planned out that way. Like the blah, blah, blahs one was a surprise, uh, that kind of happened naturally in working on the song. And then the can't run away one was also kind of a surprise kind of happened naturally while working on the song. So I'd say the only one that I can say for sure on somewhere conceptually like that was boys theme. But then, yes, it came 
it came to be that they represented something bigger than what they were. Because uh, we yeah. did spend a, we spent a lot of time once we felt that we were done recording. Just got back. We spent a lot of time, and I spent a lot of time figuring out the like the programming and like the flow of it. Um, that was something I really cared about because I was starting to really, really care about that on um, the records I I listened to. I was for you know I always obviously liked track listings and the way a record begins and ends, but I was becoming very, very more in tune with what do I actually love about the way a record starts. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like why the, is like- you know. Like the whole mapping of an album is really exactly. is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I be- I was so obsessed with that, and the records that I loved, I you know I get shivers just thinking about being that age and starting Scrambles over and over and over and over again, <laughs> or starting Whip Smart over and over and over and over again, and then going to the last track on either one of those records and thinking like, oh, it all came some something for me is like it is all literary in one way or another, and so it was you know I wanted to. I wanted to try to make that experience at the very least for myself, you know? Yeah. So I just, I had like two quick thoughts before we uh, start discussing the rest of the album. Uh, One, did you get into They Might Be Giants because of Malcolm in the Middle? Technically, yes, but it's tough to say. The, my first experience with loving They Might Be Giants is Boss of Me when Malcolm Mm. like started. Uh, you know, watching Malcolm in the Middle, like, as it aired. But it wasn't until in high school, Andrew and I saw the movie Gigantic. It's a documentary about They Might Be Giants that we became obsessed. One, the, the summer we were forming BLA, we saw Gigantic and The Fearless Freaks, which is a great documentary about the Flaming Lips. And those two movies had, like, a massive impact on why and how BLA formed, including, like, not having a drummer. Because uh, in both of those documentaries, there's extensive footage of both groups working with like backing tracks. But yeah, so I got upset. That's the summer after my sophomore year of high school. And I'm just both of us are just like head over heels in love with the entire They Might Be Giants discography. But I did know a considerable amount of their music because of Malcolm. And so getting into Lincoln like that summer, it's like, oh, like Pencil Rain, like in the the pilot episode of Malcolm in the Middle or like Spiraling Shape, like in the... Yeah. I can't remember which episode. It's Spiraling Shape, but that's the Monday episode, the one where Lois is sick. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it was like those connections got made. So the argument could be had, yes, but I just couldn't lie. I I didn't. I I remember hearing the songs while I watched Malcolm as it aired, but that didn't inspire me to like ask my parents for they might be Giants CD or anything. Right. Uh, so the se- the second thought is much more tangential and is just kind of like eerie. Um, but I, I like that you brought up the concept of automatic for the people, uh, because did you know that automatic for the people was the cassette that they found in Kurt Cobain's set, uh, cassette deck after he killed himself? I did know that. Oh, I, I did know that. Yeah. Extremely, extremely eerie and haunting. Um, and partially why some of REM's monster is about Kurt Cobain. Um, absolutely. Uh, so (laughs) do we want to do a real quick track by track, Kyle? If we do, I'm going to need to go to the bathroom. So we start with pile, no pile, pile. I think a perfect introduction to how desperate this record sounds 
And I think specifically, like, the opening couple verses almost make it, like, sound obsessive. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, sorry. And, oh, sorry. Uh, I just was going to say, to me, the weird thing about this song is that it almost sounds like a closer. Like, it's got that kind of, like, epic summing up of, like, all the themes of the record feeling uh, mixed with, like, that extended ambient outro. And then, like, there's actually some seconds of silence on the record before the next song starts. So it's just one of those things where you're like, oh, if the beginning of this record sounds as like epic and complete as like a traditional record closer, I am so stoked for how the rest of it's going to sound. That's sick. (laughs) Yeah. um, The process of making that song was really cool. It was the first song we worked on for that for the record, Um, like as a full band. You know, it was super fun because. Uh, we should have pursued it more. I don't know why we didn't, but it has, you know, actual acoustic piano, um, which I think is like aesthetically adds to it a lot. Content wise, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. The The idea of it was very much so like, can I actually spend all my time thinking about all of these concerns and should I, you know, compartmentalize them or, you know, and think about some of them sometimes or is this just the way my brain works? Is this just like the way I have to, I have to go through everything? So yeah, it's literally like a a, a massive, uh, just um, spray of so many different, different concerns I was having. It it was obsessive, and it's a it's a strange one. But uh, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. The way that you work all those lyrics into this one song, it like you're like not held down by the music itself at all. It's almost like you're freestyling over like the chords. <laughs> yeah. I, when I was listening to it this morning, it's funny, like in the, the first like half of the song, it, there's like a lot of words and they're all like on these off beats, but yeah. they're not like necessarily like lined up, which is a, probably a, a big, you know, a combination of, uh, the way I would perform vocals in the Brave Little Abacus, but also probably like latency. <laughs> and like, I would stand really far away from the mic because I liked uh, the way like the room sounded and stuff. So there's a lot of that. Or like when I would go to yell uh, and get louder, I'd like back up. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm wearing that bomb influence so hard on my sleeve. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I used to know, uh, every word to, you know, King of Minneapolis, like, you know, it was like, um, so it's not difficult to, to do the, uh, the Pepe Silvia, um, strings, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, just to bring up like reduction theory again, if I'm not mistaken, reduction theory is the theory that in order to have more comfortable and productive conversations with other people, you need to reveal things about yourself in order to make that connection. And, and, I feel like this entire song is just like, okay, let me lay down my entire psyche so you're prepared for the conversation that we're going to have throughout this record. Yeah, 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 just about. I remember the feeling of writing it to someone. I wanted mm-hmm. to I wanted to write it to someone, but but I didn't end up knowing who that who that was. So then it became writing a song to like a proverbial like everyone, um, like in my, in my life. And so I think that you're, you're, you're right on the money with that. Yeah. It's a little bit like a, like a prologue or something, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
Or like uh, The Hobbit, and then the rest of the record is The Lord of the Rings, just because oh, of how damn. epic and self-contained the song is. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then the, uh, the refrain or kind of like coda that ends the song, The Way Before Now, that comes back later in uh, Orange, Blue, With Stripes. And you said Orange, Blue, With Stripes was written... The, this is the last song that was written for the album. So was there like a, a conscious decision to connect those two thematically when pile, pile no pile pile is like, okay, here's what I, what I think this record might be about. And then orange blue with blue stripes, sorry, orange blue with stripes is uh, what the record did end up being about. Like just kind of like a, a synthetic uh, dialectic between those two. Yeah, no, I think that that's, I think that's really accurate. Um, I will say that Pile No Pile Pile is a weird song, and I definitely, it's like, it reflects like a process that I can't tap into anymore, and I haven't been able to tap into it in a long time, but just writing lyrics like linearly. And so what happens in Pile No Pile Pile is like the song starts and it's about everything, but then when it gets to way before now, it's about a very, very specific singular thing. And there's something about the process with which I like wrote that melody that that melody and those words ended up becoming the entirety of like the record for me. Um, and I remember after like the feeling of like writing pile no pile pile, I knew that that was going to come back. Um, and I didn't force it. Like I don't even remember trying it in any other song other than Orange Blue with Stripes. But that became like this thesis focal point. So, yeah. That that relationship is I I think it's important to the record I, I I think it's a it feels important to it yeah then we move on to please don't cry they stopped hours ago which is such a sad fucking title um, <laughs> uh, Kyle you noted that the lyrics uh, seem to take like a very like surreal turn and yeah there's almost something like uh, like millennial age Lewis Carroll about these about these lyrics here adam do you feel comfortable ex explicating any of what this is about yeah i do yeah i can um at that time um all my friends were living uh away from like home for the first time so they were like all living in like apartments and and they were you know successful to that to some degree um but you know with that independence it can breed a lot of, uh, you know, immaturity. Um, it can breed a lot of like misbehavior. And, uh, I was in, I was in situations that weren't really good for me to, to be in. I was in, I was in a lot of places, a lot of parties, um, a lot of apartments, you know, I was 18 that just weren't good. And it, 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 in, you know, whether it was because of, you know, drug use or uh, interpersonal relationship problems, people fighting, just like a lot of high emotional, like high octane emotional stress. And like the particular night in question that that song ends up getting written about was just one of these like, and there's a couple of them in Just Got Back of just like these long fucking grueling nights of just like, Stuff I didn't understand, like people who were friends of friends who are having like massive interpersonal stri strifes and also are are addicts. And I was just like this really strange onlooker to things and then somehow would sometimes be um, involved despite really not being involved, like literally just being there. Like I like my role in a lot of these like particular instances would be like providing a PA for a house show. And I wouldn't mm. drink, 
or do anything because I'd have to drive the PA home or if the cops came and shut it down, um, I wanted to be like, I'm the one who has the PA and like, I'm not drinking and I'm 18. I just wanted to be like upfront with it so that I never mixed getting sort of into trouble with the music stuff. If we weren't playing, I would drink. Um, you know what I mean? I was like one of those people, um, or I did that rather. Um, but so, yeah, it's, it takes a surreal turn in an attempt, I think, to like alleviate myself from a scenario that I didn't think that I like should be in. What's strange is that it's, uh, you know, the like that kind of more serene part of the song is it was almost like uh, creating like a little imaginary. Like I think like I think I actually kind of looked at it like I went into a glass of water or something, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. and I think in the moment that I was actually kind of trapped in was quite awful and what i was actually like seeing in front of me was like pretty pretty horrendous and i think i just w kind of like stared at a at a glass of water i remember one of the one of the times kind of similar just like a funny tangent was i had like an arizona sweet tea on top of my amp and i went to go take a big big sip of it during a bla song and someone had put a cigarette in it and i swallowed oh. it. like like i swallowed like an oh. entire cigarette but in this house in question and uh, and like couldn't play the next song was like it was like so bad. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I don't mean to sound like super melodramatic. It was kind of like a harbinger of things to come with some some people I was like close with or haphazardly not so close with, but they just orbited my my world. I mean, it was just people into things that you know led, led them to to you know hard drugs and and a lot of struggle. Just people having really hard lives. That's the sound. I mean, I don't know. If this can apply to anything on this record, but. You know, that's the unfortunate sound of of Just Got Back. I mean, it's and that's uh, almost every song I can tie to certain things that I, I'm just that are very sad. And it's and it's reflected in the aesthetic this morning when I was listening to it. There was like one moment of I think it was uh, bug infested floorboards. I know we'll get there. But I just just a side note. I was just like, this shit is just grueling. <laughs> like this, right. You know, like. <laughs> Um, and I'm fine with talking about it, but it's just the reality. So that's that song for sure. Um, and then you get that, uh, you know, the let me bathe the mince my ignorance, you know, um, just being like, I, I don't understand what's, you know, going on. I'm, mm. I, I'm, I'm either too young for this or I'm too stupid. I don't, under, I don't understand. The fucking yeah. breakdown on, at that part is monumental though. Just like those like guitar dives are awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I was playing a lot of the, the like tram on on the jaguar that yeah. i that i still have yeah i was really in, into that stuff on like uh on like a line construction level um the verse kind of bleeds into the first line of the chorus which bleeds into the second line of a chorus um like and it, it is all kind of like falling on top of each other rhythmically um yeah, yeah. and spinal uh goes into chord and as the lyrics are written on genius chord is written like ch ord like a like a guitar chord is that an intentional uh play on words or the person just like not know how to spell chord uh no it's definitely spinal chord like body like uh okay. like c-o-r-d yeah that's okay. I, i'd be interested to see what someone's like interpretation maybe was of like it being a double entendre but it's definitely like it's like spinal chord i think is overlapping in two different sentences i think that, yeah. if i remember correctly but well, luckily, I'm right here. Uh, <laughs> I re reading it like written like chord, like guitar chord. I like uh, I, I was kind of connecting it to uh, like the surrealism of the music reflecting like the surrealism of the situation and just kind of like, 
using music as as an escape, uh, but it's not quite working. Interesting. Yeah. But clearly that is that is bullshit because that's not how you. No, <laughs> no, it's not not like that. It's not like that. Um, yeah, no, I definitely, I know I wrote it about you know it's like definitely like the body part, but I I like the double entendre. I mean, there's plenty of moments on that record that are like about the act of music, you know, of the act right. of making music. Yeah. It would make perfect sense, like. And then it kind of, it bleeds into the next song, boys theme, which is uh, primarily an instrumental aside from the from the voice message. Were instrumentals uh, something that you always wanted to be in this record? I think instrumentals like are normally placed on records that have like these really grand uh, ambitions, like that have like a pretty wide scope. And while while there is like this characterization of just got back as a concept record, it also feels very like insular and uh, intimate. So there, there is an interesting dichotomy um, as far as there being like the signifier of uh, like a big rock and roll thing here. Yeah, uh, I loved the idea of having instrumental instrumental tracks. I had thought on Ma- on uh, Mass Dancers we had kind of done it poorly on this song, the song called "He Never Existed in the First Place," but done it really well on uh, "I Won't Always Be on the Receiving End." And so I wanted to pursue that, but Boy's Theme was a little bit different. Boy's Theme, it wasn't necessarily going to be a an instrumental. I remember like humming over like the chord organ part, um, and it became an instrumental in this like kind of just this way of of repeating it over and over again, you know, demoing it to tape and sort of just realizing that it represented like a very particular person to me. And that, and then naming it, you know, boys theme. And I just had no words to put, to, to put on there other than the, the sample, the, the voicemail. I think my favorite thing about boys theme that I always thought was like really obvious, but it's just like its entire like musical, like identity is just like basically Fox and the Hound, that song, like when you're the best of friends, <laughs> like that's like, that's what it was to me. And that song, like just about, you know. <clears throat> my best friend and that was just very like obvious to me uh and is like a really important song to me and the entire feeling of the harmonica in that song that like became something that i i tried to do twice um <laughs> in brave Abacus's discography and that being the first time uh but yeah it's a, it's something that i'm like i'm pretty proud of i think that song is kind of stood the test of time because someone was able to mash it up with the theme to space jam uh, and I, I, I saw put you that, post that. Yeah. yeah, I posted that on on Twitter because someone sent it to me, and I, I was so moved by it. Uh, it's really an incredible thing. And I don't know if before I heard that, if I thought that Boy's Theme had stood the test of time, but the fact that it, without much manipulation, could be mashed up with such a good song, like that, was very good. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really fun, you know, this is this isn't too analytic cuz but I will say I had so much fun making Boys Theme because I just toiled over all the little guitar flourishes um and you know it's it's about 3 maybe 4 chord organs. Um I thought it would sound more interesting if I played each note separately instead of like a chord. So there's like a lot of that stuff. Is there um, a is there accordion on it? 
No, it's a chord organ. That's like oh. basic. It sounds just like an accordion. They're these little side of the road joints from like the 50s and 60s. We were obsessed with getting them at pawn shops. Oh. They're, they're usually like really out of tune and some of the keys don't work. And this particular one was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty functional. So we were lucky. But it sounds so much like an accordion. Yeah. Uh, definitely. You know, and the fact that I think there's pictures of us with an accordion on the Internet at different times because we wanted to play accordion because they because might be giant. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, it's this thing called like a, a chord organ. I had totally romanticized it in my head that you just wanted to be John Linnell. Oh, that's true. I still <laughs> want that, but I just can't play accordion for shit. <laughs> Get on highway. Highway. Get on the highway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this one this one is such like a I I think messy is the wrong word because it's clearly like uh, well well put together. But it feels so like immediate and visceral because um, the beginning, the, the beginning is like almost chaos, like mm -hmm. synth strings, like almost don't make sense, except they do because they're they're so rhythmic and and stabbing. But I think this is one of the songs that is is strongest on the album um, because uh, it's indicative of like one of like the running conceits that that you do where like the beginning of the song is very like frantic and energetic and then it kind of like is too much for itself and it kind of collapses into an instrumental and then some ambience. Yeah, this song was strange. I have to say, uh, you know, going back to your correct guess on uh, this song not getting any mixing treatment or, you know, the only availability of it being that uh, mix down um, is I don't know if this song would have stayed the way it the way it was. I don't yeah. think it was really finished. Yeah, like I, I think that, you know, the outro, would, I, I, I don't know, I feel like maybe we would have shortened the outro or something. It just would have been, I think it would have gotten further edited, um, which is, I don't know, it's just interesting to think about. Um, but yeah, this one's real, just like, it was so, it was so aggressive. And I remember even like us having like a little bit difficulty recording it and doing like the parts. I mean, there's just a lot of like aggression behind it. And I remember like presenting the drum performance because I would just record all the drums like alone. Like no one was ever really there for that at this point in the band. And I think like this song in particular, I remember like I had done like the tempo map and scratched guitar and then done the drums and like kind of presented it to Zach and Andrew and we're like discussing parts. And they're like, what the fuck? Like, I think like there was even a moment of like, what? Like, what? Like, why? Why so much China simple? Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a very, very point the finger. You know, I want something very particular. I got, you know, that Liz Fair reference, really just like an in the moment, like this is important to me. I'm going to present this. Like I was saying before, I'm going to use this as a, you know, a vehicle to express something of mine. It's a funny one. It feels very aggressive. It's like that. It's, it's, yeah, frantic is a good well, word. Well, it feels... It feels very cursive, actually. Yeah, especially, oh, cool. like, the ending. Yeah. Oh, well, that's just the fucking casualty off of, uh, <laughs> is that the song? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's just fucking, yeah. uh, what, what's it called? Domestica. Yeah. yeah. Which is great, <laughs> because there's an amazing band uh, that our our friends had called These Birds Is Dead that we played a lot of shows with, Badass Mall was in that band, and they had a song that was even more like that cursive song that they ended up like taking off of their MySpace because Matt was like, we can't release this song. It's even more like the casualty than that BLA song is. And all we, and everyone knew that ours was a ripoff of it. And I didn't, I, you hear this stuff like, yeah, I don't know. For me, it's like every, every time anything like that ever happened, 
it would be way after the fact and I'd be like, Oh shit. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, luckily we had like the horns in it that, that makes it sound a little different, I guess. But. Yeah. Is this, is this one of the songs that has like some aug- auxiliary percussion stuff on it? Yeah. I think at the end for sure. Um, yeah, cause it sounds just like extra, like propulsive and stuff like that. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Um, there's a couple tracks on Just Got Back that actually have two drum set performances, but this, I don't think this was one of them. I think this was just a single. This is just me really going for that Zach Hill weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> so if Highway was frantic, then I don't even know what to classify the blah, blah, blahs as. <laughs> like, <laughs> the beginning of the song is so intense. It's got that, like, skittering. It sounds like Dillinger Escape Plan by way of Bond the Music Industry yeah. guitar, like during during the guitar breaks. So I'm glad that you pointed out those influences earlier so I could I could make that comparison. One thing I think is interesting about this track is I don't know if there were any bands in the emo scene that were doing like kind of the chiptune influence stuff before this record. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, we were really, really proud of that synth sound. I, I tried to get into like more uh, traditional ways of making chiptune or making, um, you know, eight to 16 bit um, synth sounds. And I couldn't really do it. Um, So those were like approximations of what we were able to do with the main synthesizer we used, which was an Alesis Micron, this little cheap, like, you know, digital, digital synth that was pretty versatile. But we were really proud of those songs because I was trying to make it sound as NESE as I as I could. And we, I felt like we did that for what we were working with. Um, the blah, blah, blahs was supposed to sound like Fugazi. It was supposed to like, <laughs> Ooh, like the, yeah. the drum groove, the drum groove is just like a rip on, uh, on a bunch of Fugazi tunes. Um, and then even the, the riff being like those big strummed out chords. I kind of like, I was talking to somebody the other day and they, they were, we were talking about that song and I was, and I brought up like this particular scene and instrument that I like, was so like moved by on how like a uh, uh, Guy and and Ian like stood and how they strummed their guitars and then they like DM'd me the sh- like the very shot that I was like talking about, <laughs> but um yeah that so yeah blah blah blahs it's um it's a really fun song to make it has two drum grooves and I remember this is uh this was one of the tunes that got a little bit of mixing luckily from um you know my guitar teacher at the time uh, at least just in the drum sense of you know they're not like spastic, likely like on top of one another. Like there's drums like that. that I think the groove kind of sings through and I, I really owe that to him. Cause I can't imagine that it actually sounded like that before. Yeah. In, an interesting, an interesting song. It was definitely supposed to sound like Fugazi it ends up sounding like something different, but. Yeah. Well, now the, now that you bring up Fugazi, I can hear like the K Y E O in the guitar. Oh yeah. Like yeah, that. yeah. 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 That like staccato, like, ringing noise especially yeah, yeah um i really just like the conversational tone of the last verse here like yeah but it did the night that i said to rob that i could not keep my opinions to myself for any longer but that could have just been another one of my blah blah blahs um i just like how it's it's casual but it maintains like the like the kind of lyrical quality of the prior lyrics like or the more poetic quality i guess i should say and it really is just kind of like maybe why I, I like the song so much because it's that kind of casual energy interspersed with like these bursts of like Bravo fucking Bravo esque vocals or like uh, I would set myself on fire for you esque vocals. 
And now that I think about it, I think post emo actually has a lot to thank like the screamo scene for as far as like the kind of like proggy screamo stuff like gospel or circle takes the square. How, how, how screamo, how scrams were you back in the day, Adam? I am still to this day obsessed with the discography of this band called Lantidum that was mm, from mm-hmm. like around my area and particularly their record, Arthur Carr had like a huge influence on Brave Little Abacus. Um, and then on the Might of Princes, which I think is its own thing. Cause we were mostly obsessed with sirens. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of it. I mean, I, there's like a Loma Prieta song that I loved and was like my MySpace song. And I listened to like, but other than that, I mostly listened to like Converge. Like, you know, it was like, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't listen to a lot of stuff that people would have called scrams. I actually didn't know the term until like way, way late. But yeah, uh, one funny thing I just want to add, because I don't know if anyone like knows this. Some people do, I guess. But like the it's these ideas that waste on my time part. That's my friend Rory, who was the lead singer of that band in Tarot Bang that I was in at the same time. That's not me. Is he oh, the one that sings that. it in the final show? Yeah, and so I think some people have like put that together, I but I know, I know that some uh, some people maybe even like hearing this, like they think I go into this like really awesome place in my vocal range that I don't have. <laughs> Rory's like a monster singer, like one of my favorite um, front people of all time, and being in a band with him was extremely special. Uh, but yeah, I really wanted his voice on the record, and he. Yeah, we did it like in his kitchen. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you sampling like Sonic at the beginning of the song? Um, there, there's like some video game game like character jumping at the beginning. It, it might be Sonic. Um, at that time, I was mostly pulling from PS One games. It might be a sound effect from because there's Marvel versus Capcom and Please Don't Cry. Um, it might be from like a, a sound effect in something like that it could be sonic i think i might have had a genesis at that point it's really hard to remember like i remember doing the malcolm in the middle sampling like like clear as day but i actually don't really remember the video game samples as well and just got back they were done like very very quickly yeah oh i should mention so. one more thing on blah blah blahs because i forgot to on please don't cry the gang vocals are <laughs> so lovingly provided by um uh very close friends of mine but at the time they were all like sophomores in high school they were like four to five years younger than us and they were uh mostly younger siblings of friends of ours that formed an amazing ska band called skami hami ha and i got (laughs) i got them i got them to do all of the uh all the gang vocals and I love and that's like something that lights me up like this morning hearing those gang vocals because it's like it's like six like 14 year old kids who I just like adored and I was like you guys want to do gang vocals I think it's great it's great I love that I love uh, I also love that you were listening to Converge because the running theme of our series has been like how much emo just comes like from hardcore Um, (laughs) oh yeah I mean it's like so much to to take out of of that discography yeah i mean i can i could go on about it forever it's wild wild so for can't run away the thing i think is interesting about this song is that the guitar line at the beginning is despite being acoustic it's like maybe the most traditionally like pretty like uh not quite twinkly but like most like traditionally emo sounding guitar line on the record yeah 
and then um, kind of like simultaneously as uh, you talk about juxtaposed to the accelerating swell of the musical score, the music itself swells and it becomes like uh, very weird for an instrumental emo song. It becomes like uh, angular and harsh. So I've always thought like the different textures that were being explored in the song were super interesting. Yeah, this song is really sad. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's really sad. Uh, I once, just a side note, like was hanging out uh, in like Zach was a composition major at school, and when they found out he was like in a band, they were like, "Oh, like they were thinking he like it was kind of like orchestral or like prog rock or something." So like, why don't you like present some of your band? Um, so he like he had me go into the, like the composition course or club or something with him, and like we presented "Can't Run Away." And uh, it was like one of the most like mortifying experiences I ever had in college because it was just all of these like classical composer majors. Just a they never looked at Zach the same again, even though he was studying like fucking microtonal music. Um, but they just looked at me and they were like, "Are are are you good? Like, are you okay?" <laughs> <laughs> so it's just very. I don't know. I was. Uh, yeah, that's a whole nother topic. But we were just so un like so unaware of ourselves sometimes when we presented some of this material. Um, the spoken word bit in this song is me like haphazardly and very upset reading a part of a paper I wrote on the brave little toaster like that <laughs> like semester. Um, it's, I, I can't remember like exactly it's whatever the juxtaposed to the accelerating swell of the score, all of that, um, all of that part. And like, I was like kind of like upset. At my, I was like annoyed at myself and like annoyed at the song. And uh, and so I was like trying to be this like other voice or something like um, <laughs> criticizing the paper. Really about weird. really weird. Is that a part? Is that about the part of the Brave Little Toaster where it like really seems like the main characters are just actually going to die? Uh, I don't know. I think I think it's more about when they first see the city, when they get through the okay. forest. We were obsessed with the score to that movie. Like, I know the score of that entire movie, like, the back of my hand. And we would obsess over, like, that um, scene and, the, and the, the musical cue there. It's, like, very strange. It should be hopeful, but it's, like, never... Brave Little Twister is never hopeful. No, it's a fucking yeah. horrifyingly sad movie. Like... Yeah, who would have ever for... thought that Brave Little Abacus was obsessed with it? Yeah. <laughs> Is Brave Little Abacus Don Bluth or no? Uh, no, it's actually okay. proto, proto Pixar. It's Lasseter oh, and them. Yeah, it's all. It's like Pixar before they had a real company. It's like Disney's last bet on them as regular animators. And then they I think went on I, CGI. I probably thought it was Don Bluth because it has the same like Secret of Nim esque quality of oh, kids can handle like any amount of trauma in a film that you throw at them as long as there's a happy ending. Oh, big time. And we were obsessed with Bluth, too. We were obsessed with animation across the board. We we would watch, like, Rockadoodle and Troll in Central Park. I mean, that was, like, our bread and butter. Um, oh, Troll in Central What was that other one about the penguin? Uh, the Pebble, Pebble and the penguin. penguin. I love that. That's, that's, that's a late-era Don Bluth. I don't remember getting into that stuff as much. Um, but I, as a final note on the song, I do want to say that I think probably the definitive line of this era of emo is when I say I'm sad, I mean it. Yeah. Man. Damn. <laughs> and I think I feel that's like... also like the, the definitive vocal delivery on this album as well. Yeah. It's got that, it's got that melody mixed with that kind of like 
abrasive, desperate quality that you've mastered throughout the album. And I think the the thing that I really love about about the vocal approach on this album is that it seems so much like you care about what you're singing, but you don't care about how you're singing it. And I, I know that like in practice, it's probably not what you were thinking, but it is how I came across that kind of lends itself to like this just reckless abandon and and catharsis. Uh, no, I think that that's right on. I, I don't think I, I got to say, I, you know, I take any any criticism of my the way my voice sounds in the Bravo Abacus. Like that's not even criticism. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was just kind of saying as like another like, I was sorry, prefacing like a different point. I was, I was going to say, like, I kind of like take it, it, you know, pretty easily. I mean, my parents like it, they literally wanted to kick me out of their house because they came home one night and I was (laughs) tracking something, I think Map of the Stars or some shit. And they were like, you can't, you can't live here anymore. Um, But, uh, but I was just going to say, I, you're right on in saying I, I didn't, I was not concerned. Like I just wasn't concerned and can't run away. That was like a one take song, uh, maybe with like an overdub for like the spoken word thing or something. But, um, I just like did it, you know, I just did it. And I, and I, it's so funny for as much, as many parts of the Brave Little Abacus that we thought painstakingly about what it sounded like to like an elitist, like neurotic level. That's not how we looked at things like the vocals or things like the drums. It was like, it was like putting the cart before the horse, but it's more like we didn't know that you needed a horse to fucking drag the cart. You know what I mean? Like it was like, my vocals were just my vocals, you know, and that's why, like, I take any, you know, uh, anyone that has any opinion on it. I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. I just like I went, you know, just went for it. This song was different because it was in my it was like in a range I could sing. Um, so it has a different quality. You know, I'm not just like trying to do the whole like sing as high as possible thing or something. But yeah, yeah, these th- th- this one's weird. This this song's weird. It's a uh, definitely one that hearing this morning was it's it's sad it's rough and the delivery's rough i feel bad for the guy who wrote that song (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time i feel like i don't know what you're referring to in like half the lines like like hats of green and like the third verse we're talking about your dad and stuff and then the stuff about the posters (laughs) (laughs) i was i was very upset I was very upset about a number of things, some individual incidents, but also just the way my life was going. And I was having difficulty finding solace in simple things. And uh, sometimes finding solace in a simple thing in a song would sort of put me back on, you know, track, so to say. And so that was, you know, my dad, my relationship with my parents was getting better when I was making just got back from the discomfort and my relationship with my friends was getting worse. Mm. And that was a scary, that was a scary thing to see occur. And I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. I still don't really know what that, what that meant. Um, but I did sing about it. I didn't feel understood by either my social group or my parents, but I knew that I was safer with my parents than what was going on outside of their walls. Right. Um, or, or at least I was more comfortable. And I fucking love Tom Petty. And my dad's like the number one biggest Tom Petty fan in the world. And it's, he, you know, he, you know yeah. uh, played the, the drums with you at your final show. Yeah. Yeah. American yeah. Girl. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. That was, that was a good memory. So yeah. And then the poster was, um, 
I'm a big, uh, I'm, uh, I'll just say this, I guess. I'm a big, like, um, decorator person. Like, I, I'm in a room right now with, like, literally, like, framed pictures of, like, Bjork and the replacements and, like, Liz Fair and this stuff all over my walls. And that kind of started that uh, at that time in my life and just because I was just really, really fucking lonely. And I think it was a Paramore poster. I think I put it up in my room and I think uh, I kind of remember like looking at it and it was just like me and that poster or like thinking about it. I think it was like coming from eBay or something. And I was just like, this is bad. (laughs) (laughs) This is really bad. (laughs) Just straight up. I'm still a poster person though. They make me feel less alone. I like framing like pictures and magazine clippings and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I love how much you love Paramore throughout this entire <laughs> I conversation. Love Paramore. I love they're Paramore so band. much. Yeah, I know. I think that they're like the most important band of the last like 20 years. But yeah. When um, when I bought a Masked Dancers and Me and Capri's shirt from you, you sent me a poster of Me and Capri's and then I posted it on Instagram and the kid that made the posters DM'd me. It was like that this is making my life that he is mailing people my poster. I didn't know what to do with it. Ricky's the be- he's the best. He's so he sent me like a hundred of them. I thought I was gonna cry, and I was yeah. like, I was like, I can't sell these. What am I gonna do with them? And he's just like, anything you want. So I was like, I'll give them Aww. to anybody. Like I just I just gave them to everyone. He's so nice. Yeah. He made he made us like a hundred of them. It was beautiful. Yeah, it's it's sweet. Track seven, entering the second half of the album, untitled, continued. Sequel to the song Untitled uh, off of the split with Matt Aspinwall. Mm-hmm. Uh, very similar lyrical content. Just about the dissolve of a friendship. A friendship that feels like it's dissolving throughout the entire record. So is the record in its entirety about the dissolution of this friendship? No. Or is that just one facet of the discomfort? It's one one facet. It's about the, you know dissolve of like a variety of relationships and perspectives mm. i think but that but that's one of them that feels like throughout it is is brought up and because like un, the regular untitled was about like the same exact thing i very uncleverly named it untitled continued <laughs> i feel like this song um, just kind of starts a race to the end of the album yeah yeah absolutely i mean this is where this is where like even the production of the record gets like kind of kind of funny the songs just kind of go for sure i think actually like just tracks seven through ten are like the meat of it because i think bug infested floorboards is like it's yeah it's like this it's like this break from the frantic pace or like the uh the culmination of what that breathless pace has been and then Orange Blue with Stripes is like the coda. I don't know how to pronounce the name of track eight. Morning Love Song. I think it's Obad. Obad? I think it is. I think it's like French or something, yeah. Obad, Abida, die. Um, This is like, in comparison to the, the rest of the album, I think this is like one of the least dense songs lyrically. I agree. There's, there's a lot of like Rage Against the Machine-esque repetition. Uh, yeah this one is the this and the next track are like it's weird they're really weird i don't they like they're in their own i have a couple funny stories about them they're kind of on their own little island it's weird and this one is one of the only songs in the record that it feels like explicitly romantic as well 
And I don't even know whether it's supposed to be taken literally or metaphorically the opening. Yes, I thought our mouths would meet line because it feels like it, it could be about a specific person. But it also somewhat feels like the relationship of the song is just kind of metaphorical for all the relationships uh, discussed throughout the album. Just kind of like this, uh, this search for connection that is not like adding up. Yeah. And I it was funny, you know, with this song, um, I liked the interplay of the keyboards and the horns and the and like the guitar. And what's funny about it being so like repetitive is that it we also were becoming hyper aware of songs being like frantically changing and like their themes changing and going through part after part after part. And so we liked the idea and we liked experimenting with the idea of like a song that didn't do that to see what would happen, you know. And so that was kind of what was neat about it. My fun fact or weird fact about this song, and it's not what you think it is, is that I was letting someone borrow a lot of my drum equipment. And so all I had was a ride cymbal, floor tom, a kick drum, and a snare. Like no hi-hats, no rack tom, no crash stands, anything like that. And instead of just figuring out how to get them back or going to a store and getting what I needed, I tracked the drums on that minimal setup. And that's why you get all the like rim clicks and all the sort of weird improvisation because I could I didn't have hi hats and like a rat bomb and and I re- and I kind of regret it to this day. It's just like another another sort of like a uh, indication of just like oh like that's that's how they worked, you know, like fast, not smart, you know. But it's just very funny to me like rehearing this morning and just being like, oh my God, like I wanted I should have just got fucking hi hats. <laughs> like I think it sounds cool though. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. I'm glad it made it work. We were flexible, but it's funny, you know. The thing I like about the the parenthetical title being Morning Love Song is that in the bridge, when you actually do mention the morning, it's in the morning, I'll be fine. It seems to be like the an ironic contrast with what the title might believe you might lead you to believe that the song is about. It's not a love song about love happening in the morning. It's a song about the morning after potential love. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think I'm like seven for eight, maybe on interpretation. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're about something. <laughs> they're, they're... <laughs> so I really am very fond of track nine. It's not what you think it is because the first verse feels very uh, Max Bemis. Yeah. I think. I straight up thought that today. Wait, what's Max Bemis? Say anything. Singer of Say Anything. Oh, whoa, that's sick. I really love uh, Live with the Glory of Love, but I don't really know that band. So you should listen to a, the the lyrics to the song Admit It and cool. and then listen to, to this one again because <laughs> it feels not it doesn't feel like a ripoff at all. Oh, no, I should, okay. I should be cool, clear, but cool. it just feels like uh, it feels like uh, kind of like a continuation of I feel like at at this time there was a lot of there was there was a lot of like born in the wrong generation type dorks who were like I wish MTV still played music videos when the fact is MTV has always had non music video content course, uh, yeah. but but the thing that that ties the say anything song and this song together in my mind is kind of like the revulsion leveled at kind of like the hipster the prototypical hipster there's like an archetype of the the cynical snob that that gets massacred here which is i think like a running theme in all of emo ever since at least irony is for suckers by lifetime like just kind of like 
elevating yourself above like the rest of pop culture doesn't actually uh, make you better than the rest of pop culture. It just means you're commenting on it. You slip in the little bit of self-loathing in here too. The fact that I hate the way that I talk. <laughs> well, it was hard. I mean, I was, I I was really fed up with a bunch of the quote-unquote alternative that I was surrounded by for a variety of reasons. I felt like it was strangely disingenuous. I felt like people were not an alternative of much, and I and it's particularly people who I didn't find um, very creative or like. It weren't like artists, but the what got difficult was I was a I was a complete like elitist in in and of myself. So me, you know, embracing you know maybe more uh, pop music or something that's not on the surface that's cool that's that cool or feeling a little bit like outsider-ish for what I liked or how I liked it and it not being like hip or or whatnot. What was strange about that was like I was conceited in my taste. In this, in a very similar like way, so it was. Um, I don't know. It was definitely an aggressive song that had me pointing a lot of fingers. But I think that I needed to at least point the finger back at myself at least like once, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then it goes into a place that's just like the finger stays on per, on the individual and never <laughs> leaves. Bad, sad <laughs> ass ending. Uh, damn. But yeah. What's the line in Sweden they got it right, I guess, about... Is that about Refused or is it about ABBA? Uh, I wish it was about uh, uh, ABBA, but it was definitely about Refused. I oh, felt yeah. really... I I was, I was, had some weird experiences getting into The Shape of Punk to Come that year and showing it to some people that I knew outside of the Brave Little Abacus and them just being like, this is garbage music. Like, people who I, like thought were pretty cool people who I thought were pretty smart, pretty hip. And I was just like, wait, how isn't this so important to you? And there's a lot of that in that song, you know, and what they didn't like about it was probably the fact that like new noise sounds like it could have been like written by like Rob Zombie at times, you know, and but that's like, that's the best part. Like, it's very true. And this song also has the the callback to untitled continued with uh, if we're all our own co-pilots. Um, was the was kind of like the thematic connection if untitled is about like like a specific relationship within the scene it's not what you think it is kind of seems like about analyzing your own relationship with the broader scene i think i'd get more more and more angry about stuff and then i'd feel more and more alone and then i'd feel more and more sad as i got more alone and more angry the level of disconnect i just felt with with so much of my surroundings was just so far reaching in my life. I mean, like I, it's hard for me to really like tap into the per like, and I, I can't stress this enough. I feel like weird saying it, but I, I can't tap into the person within me that wrote about dying in a car because they would, cause they, cause they could sneeze and let go of the wheel and that there was no one else in the car. Like it's, I just was so I, I had this the the largest gap I felt between me and other people. And somehow in this song, I venture from like judging everyone to at the end of it being like, damn, this cycle is bad. <laughs> like it's huh. yeah, yeah, I don't know. Pretty heavy. <laughs> and then it leads into the companion piece to boys theme in my mind. 
yeah. Austin, Massachusetts, yeah. December 2009 to January 2010. This is another kind of like overture. And Kyle was attempting to break the songs on this record down into acts. And I think he, he got it right, uh, in my opinion, that the the overtures kind of uh, resemble like the act breaks, the intermissions. I really that, like that idea. It's cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so not intentional then. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I think we we got we were talking about this a little bit before. I mean, I think like um, it wasn't, it wasn't. I, it's just hard to right. say. It's it's hard to say because they were so improvisational, um, like Alston, Massachusetts. So I just happened to be at uh, my friend Rory and Colin's a- apartment for a couple of days, and I wanted to record them doing some guest vocals. Like we got Rory on the blah blah blahs, and it just happened to line up where the uh, the you know the months changed and whatever. And I ended up staying there long. For some reason, I stayed like longer than I was going to, and just started picking away at this uh, tape of I think they had an acoustic guitar, you know, and like an ashed out acoustic guitar in their living room that's like maybe had two strings on it you know what i mean and just started picking away at that and the toy piano they had and a lot of it made it on the records at different places and the only reason i can't claim that it was like an act break or something was because i never planned on making the song there was an improvisational element to the construction of that record i never planned on the blah blah blahs having a the outro it did until we were making it and then all of a sudden experimenting to make it and this alston song i mean it really felt like it's a really special track to me, and the and the stranger moments of this record are it's most like serene and special to me, because it sounds like a little bit otherworldly to me, and it just kind of made itself, and um I I like that. So I wish I could say it had more of a plan, but it's it really just sort of happened. I think it's honestly super interesting how despite how kind of improvisational, intentional but not intentional it was, like. Alston kind of matches perfectly, like symmetrically with boys theme and feeds yeah. again into like the eternal recurrence theme of the, of the record. Yeah. Like you could, yeah, you sure. could listen to it like sequenced backwards and still hear all like the themes popping up, like a mirror image of where they popped up in earlier songs. Just again, an example of like why I was so intimidated to do this record. It just seems so like flawlessly <laughs> pulled off. Um, <laughs> it's very kind. <laughs> I don't know. It's crazy. I'm glad that it, it I'm glad that it works that way. I mean, I, I said it, you know, earlier, I, if there was any like end goal, it was something that would last, that would entertain us, that would yeah. fulfill what, what we, what we were doing. We, we knew it was, we knew it was something that would, we would find further enjoyment in. We knew it was something that we would be proud of. We didn't know what that really looked like, but that ended up manifesting in people finding a lot of pockets of interest in it or, you know, of hating it and being just curious. I mean, that's one of my favorite um, just got back reactions that there can possibly be. I saw a, I saw a recent Twitter situation that I was loosely attached to where people were <laughs> just making disparaging comments about just got back. And I was like, hey, that's like that's what they found. Like, I know that music I really, really dislike is fascinatingly important to me because if it didn't exist, I wouldn't really, really dislike it. Disparaging comments. Jesus. Um, <laughs> on the Internet? On the Internet? Uh, this is this is off topic, but I do want to want to broach. Uh, have you seen like the, the recent like email Facebook meme about the Brave Little Abacus vocal sounding like SpongeBob? 
I've heard that comparison. I, I haven't seen like a specific meme, but I know like people have called it like SpongeBob core and things like that. Yeah, that's been around for like five years, I feel like. Yeah, yeah which I is, feel I feel like it's popped up again recently. And I the reason I have such a problem with it is just because it does not sound correct to me. I just don't hear it at all. If anything, sorry, Adam, I hear Mandark from Dexter's Lab. Oh, I was going to say the same thing. I've seen that comparison before and I'm just like, oh, totally. Like, give him a little bit of a lisp and you've got me. Um, but yeah, I don't get the SpongeBob thing. I mean, he's. he's I think SpongeBob has a beautiful singing voice. I don't have it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Tom, Tom Kenny actually can can belt it. Oh um, yeah. Also, I I believe I read somewhere that you referred to your own vocals as like Penguin Boy Weirdo Punk. <laughs> oh, Penguin Punk. Well, Penguin Punk is because of uh, one of the only ever reviews we got. It was all all it really said about us was that I looked like a penguin. You can oh, find it on the internet. It's like Brandeis. <laughs> yeah, we played at Brandeis opening for Toro y Moa in like 2009, maybe. Maybe 2010. That's a bizarre lineup, but also very cool. It was um, fine. But they, yeah, the, school, the student newspaper wrote like a review. We covered Careful by Paramore and they had no idea what it was. <laughs> and they were like, they did some weird cover that they were very enthusiastic about. And the song, singer looks <laughs> like a penguin. Uh, so track 11, <laughs> bug infested floorboards. Uh, you have said that this was the saddest song on the record. Kyle says that this is, uh, the, the hopeful song when things get hopeful. So what's the, what's the dialectic? How do we, how do we reconcile these? It, I mean, I think it is, I think it was written to be the most hopeful. I think the, I think that the outro is very, very hopeful. I think it was like the most hopeful thing I like mm. ever wrote in Brave Little Abacus, probably, you know, like the horns and mm -hmm. the and the vocals. But there was something just like, um, like I hear those lyrics and there's like certain things that I can recall, like they're like particularly about. But I guess what struck me in a very like I'm older was that like I in bug infested floorboards, I the this character, this person, you know, me, whatever, they don't have like a resolution to anything. They're just gonna right. like bail. They're gonna like bounce. And the way it interacts with the Malcolm sample just kinda like gutted me this morning, the second Malcolm sample. Mm. Because I'm just like mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, like this isn't this isn't it. Like it's not like this isn't like a solution. Cynthia is Cynthia is always right. That's the thing about Malcolm in the Middle. Cynthia is always right. And that's, you know, and it's good that Malcolm can admit, you know, this uh, this dichotomy. Um, but yeah, something about it, just the way it interacted. Sorry, I'm already rambling. It's just it's just sad. I was like, oh, Jesus. I was like, took me years to figure out what was really going on. Cynthia know. was such a good character. And then she just went away forever. I think like after this episode, like yeah, I don't maybe know. Maybe pop up again one more time, but yeah, one of my favorite characters on the show, one of my favorite relationships on the show. I don't, I don't know why they they dropped the ball with that. Uh, I think they kind of like tried to rekindle the same dynamic when they brought in Hayden Penetier's character. Yeah, I think she also represented like a similar like foil for Malcolm. Very um, much, yeah, very much. Adam, let's start a Malcolm in the Middle podcast. Right, right. I, I would, I would do that. I love, I, I love talking about Malcolm in the Middle. I'm so glad, like more people. I like meeting more people that like love Malcolm in the Middle. It's so good. I don't think it got like critical, uh, the critical acclaim it deserved at the time because the writing is just as like 
layered and nuanced and clever as, say, Arrested Development or Community. But oh, it yeah. just was a family sitcom. So people yeah. kind of wrote it off as like post Simpsons. Yeah. Anyway. I think people uh, <laughs> I think people are kind of uh, championing it as like the kind of uh, middle class family. How yeah. like they they like capture that to like middle oh, course, class yeah. families. Like that's how they're appraising it. And I think that's dope. Because yeah, all we yeah, had I, before that was like Roseanne, which Yeah, I wrote a I wrote an essay back when uh, there was still the possibility of Bernie making it through the primaries about a Malcolm Middle kind of representing like the struggle of the working class and uh, how that spoke to me growing up. This has become an entirely different podcast, but I'm having fun. So the thing that I think is interesting about Bug and Fed Floorboards is that uh, sonically, I think the song it mirrors most closely is actually Pile No Pile Pile in that like it ramps up and every time you think that it can't get any more intense or grandiose, it does until like it just cuts. And I think that because this song feels so ambitious, that's why Orange Blue with Stripes works following up on it because it doesn't feel like of a piece or the same level of like, oh, this is like the closer of the record as Bug and Festive Floorboards. It feels like kind of ruminating on on the journey that we went through. Yeah, I really didn't want to really didn't want to close the record with with Bug Infested. I liked uh sometimes we'd close sets with Bug Infested. Mm, um I liked I liked doing that. Yeah. I really didn't want to close the record with it. Um that uh the I think I'll leave this place now. That's Colin. That's the other vocal uh the the three of three vocal um features also of that band in Tarobang. He did a great job. I loved tracking that. I also didn't want to sing that line. It's funny. I was listening to it this morning and I was like, oh yeah, I remember like I didn't want to sing that line. I wanted someone else to sing it. And I don't really remember that exactly why, but I know I did. That melody, I think one of the, the neatest things that happens on that record, and I, I feel like because it's 10 years old, I can give myself a pat on the back for it. But is the way oh, yeah. the, the melody interacts with the way before now melody on yeah. the slide. Guitar. Yeah. I think I, I heard that this morning and I was just like, oh, I was like, it's cool. Like, you know, like, that's good. You did. You did good. <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of that. Yeah, I'm proud of that. All right. So we are at the big finale, um, which ironically is the most subdued song on the record how do how do you feel about the song in conversation with with the rest of the record and also correlatively uh the fact that it seems like a direct response to pile no pile pile it's my favorite bravel abacus song i think it's uh i think that it's a song it's probably one of the only songs that i ever wrote and recorded and performed in Brave Little Abacus that helped me like work through anything that I was like trying to constantly utilize the band to reach some catharsis of a lot of times in ways that were maybe destructive or, you know, overtly like missing the point. But um, Orange Blue with Stripes was something that I like toiled over and thought a lot about and I think I think it like helped. And that's it's weird to say that about like a very simple combination of, you know, notes and chords. But it was an extremely like cathartic experience making it something that I is like fascinating to me is like I just wanted the piano to sound like like Liz Fair. Like I just wanted it to sound like Canary. And like sometimes 
I think about that and I think about like how close I felt to those to those records and that sound. I played that piano too. That's another weird thing about Orange Blue is Stripes. Orange Blue is Stripes is like an Adam Demersion song. And that might possibly be why it feels so accessible to me. I don't, I don't even I don't know if Zach played any keyboards on that song. I honestly don't know. Which, looking back, was probably like a complete jerk move of mine, just being like, oh, I did them already. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a song that encapsulates the record, uh, encapsulates the band for me, um, myself, the my relationships. It harkens back to a play I wrote my senior year of high school, like a one-act play I wrote that was performed that was important to me. Yeah, it's a weird little piece of history. It's my little my little thing. I uh, on me and Capri's tours. I've played it solo a couple of times. I remember once uh, we were playing a show in Connecticut, and Awake but still in bed. We're like coming back from like Mexico, and Shannon had them drive like all night because they were getting to like maybe New York, but. Shannon took them to our fucking show and they showed up. We had no idea they were there. And I remember I played it that night. That was really cool. That's so sweet. The song to me sounds just completely timeless. Like, like it sounds like I could hear it walking around the grocery store and it would sound like one of the oldies. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. On that CD, I found those final mixes of it has like a longer um, intro and outro. It's like really funny. Like at the end, there's like this tail that's really weird. And at the beginning, like I was saying, you hear us being like, press that button, press that button. Yeah. I was like, I got like a little steamy. I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, that's, I was like, that is wild. And you hear the room. Like I know the room that it was like primarily made in because you can hear like footsteps and the sound of like a radiator and weird, weird shit. But that song feels very like alive to me for that reason because the production is, it's also like on its sleeve, I guess. I can't believe we actually did end up making it through the whole record. I was like foreseeing like a like a pause and come back later sort of situation, but I'm glad we did. This yeah, this was really good. Thank you for being like so open and friendly and willing to talk about all this stuff, Adam. You were oh, a really course. really good guest. Cool. I'm glad to hear it. I re- I like your podcast. I was introduced uh, to it when Shannon was on, and I was got really wow. excited to that get the email. You know. Yeah. 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 It just felt like a like a fun fun thing to do it's nice to make new friends in quarantine too you know Hell yeah yeah i th- that's like the cap on really this was kind of, this is kind of like uh, a decade under the influence coming full circle isn't it like we went right back to the beginning and i think this record is kind of like maybe slightly less acknowledged uh roadmap to where emo is right now oh yeah and I'm I'm just really glad we got to have this experience and break the album down. So yeah. thank you again for coming on, Adam. You rock. Of course, you rock. Thanks for having me. It was a uh, it was fun. It's a good time. It's finally great to get the history from from you instead of random. The, maybe the dude who uploaded just got back to Spotify. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm 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 truly shocked that no one else has like tried to document this band in any other way. Well, one it's day, up. who knows, you know? I'll, maybe they'll have a song Good Morning intimidating. America. <laughs> oh, yeah. wait, am I? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just oh. making a joke because of how f- obviously friendly and approachable you are. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> cool. I'm glad to hear it.